everybody. We are here. We are back. All four of us back on our usual time of Wednesday. And, well, we have a lot to say as usual. There is a lot to compare to the books here. It's difficult sometimes to tell how the books relate to the show, especially as we get farther along and the divergences grow. But there's always things that we can relate to the books to see if there's connections. For example, this episode, there's a lot of things that we can relate to the books that may or may not actually end up relating to the books, but some of these things absolutely raise topics that are important for us to consider within the book context. A lot of the stuff happening beyond the wall is a perfect example of that. But we're gonna start with a little bit of a round table, getting our complaints off our chest because it's important to vent, it's important to you know, say what we feel before we dive into with a full analysis, because there are a lot of issues with this episode. There are a lot of things to say that aren't positive, but we don't want to sit here for two hours and complain either. So let's start off with, you know, venting <laughs> and saying all the things that we didn't like or that we flat out hated. And then we'll go into the analysis where it's more about figuring out what happened and figuring out what the books say about all this and where things may tie together. And so we can all hang out and have a good time. Because at the end of the day, that's why we're here. We're here to have a good time. No one wants us to complain for two hours. But at the same time, there's plenty of negative things we have to say about this episode. So we got to do both. So who wants to start? <laughs> Shea, Lady Gwen, Yoke Boy, who wants to vent first? Who wants to, who wants to let him have it? I'll go. <laughs> All right. I'll dive in. Um, I I want to start out by naming pros for this episode because I did find a lot of great things. Um, as usual, the music and the sound design. I listened to this episode on headset. The sound is amazing. Um, costuming was always um, really great, as usual. Uh, the CGI, the general spectacle. This is what they exceed excel app and this was no disappointment in all those areas cons general storytelling the pacing which is something we've talked about a lot this season um it just doesn't feel right it's resulted in kind of rushed storylines character development these are things that i feel like have grown weaker as the season progresses and it's all kind of starts with the pacing i think we're starting to see the problem of Showrunners writing backwards, meaning that they're trying to get to a specific endpoint and just fill in the gap between where the source material leaves off and what the end is. And they just have a little restricted space and it's resulting in this kind of off-kilter feel. Overall, I would give it a six and a half, which is the lowest I've ever given an episode um, especially a penultimate episode, I would have expected a much higher rating. Yeah, it's definitely my least favorite of the season, too. I'm not sure what I would rate it. I haven't given it that kind of thought, but absolutely give it a, a drop off. Now, just to balance this out, another thing, something that Shay and I did right before recording was we watched the behind the scenes on filming that battle. And that always helps a little bit with, with my any frustration I have because, man, when you see how much effort they go into making that these scenes. It's really just crazy. They they literally hollowed out a quarry, flattened a quarry with concrete, and then froze water on top of it to make the frozen lake uh, stuff. And then they had explosives for the for the dragon fire. And then they had things really funny things like you see Thoros 
Paul K, the actor, wrestling with just like a metal cage that's like the size of a small brazier. And that's the, not a bra, but a, you know, one of the things you burn coal, small coals in. <laughs> and uh, he's like, he's wrestling with this little contraption and that's supposed to be the undead bear. And it's just really kind of funny to see that behind the scenes. Well, um, yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of what Lady Gwynne was saying. You know, it starts with the pacing and it's kind of had a knock-on effect where other other parts of the basic kind of tenets of storytelling are, are getting affected, like the characterization, uh, plot motives and tension all feel a bit off. Um, I thought there was a touch of self-parody about the... The, the the action scenes which which for me isn't really a good sign and the there's a headline from the UK press said best show on TV becomes the silliest <laughs> and I, you know I read that and I, and I kind of agreed and it was kind of sad that you know this show that's done so much much for fantasy and reinventing this genre that had become quite unfashionable and and you know, this feeling, again, that it's silly. It's kind of where fantasy started. So I felt a bit sad, you know, but the story's not over. I'm sure there'll be, you know, better episodes. But as a penultimate episode, I felt pretty disappointed, yeah. Yeah, certainly unusual for, I think this is probably the most complaining and criticizing, valid, all of it, for the most Mm -hmm. part. Not all of it. Certainly, there's always nitpicks that I don't agree with, but there's always plenty that I do. And this is one of those cases where you usually don't have as much nitpick in a penultimate episode. There's usually more positivity about it because it is usually better. (laughs) And one thing I particularly agree with Lady Gwen is the pacing. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is, we've all these seasons have built up so many fun things and this is supposed to be payoff, right? And and a lot of it has been. A lot of this season, we've gotten a lot of really awesome payoff, like a lot of nostalgia, a lot of meaningful moments. But when you rush through it, it just kind of, it's like, hey, we wanted, we've been waiting for these payoffs. Yeah, and I think <laughs> Why are we rushing past them? Yeah, and I think they're rushing through it after having taken their time for seasons and seasons and seasons, whereas if they'd been going at right. a closer pace to this earlier mm-hmm. on, it wouldn't feel so off to me personally. But it really does feel, I mean, it goes down to things like travel time. In previous seasons, it took a while to travel for most people, and so it feels wrong and off to a lot of viewers when they just throw that out the window. And it usually wasn't to advance the plot. The time stuff you could always, was always to me, was always more forgivable because it usually didn't matter. It wasn't like Varus going back and forth to Essos really quickly wasn't like key to the action that followed it you know it wasn't like it wasn't a deus ex machina where it kind of is here because the whole the timing is they have to mess with the timing to get that scene to work whereas in the past you could kind of explain it away it's like oh virus going back and forth it's not like anything happened it's not like this and that but here it's like they're relying on the the fact that the timeline doesn't work. And then they came out and admitted. They came out and admitted that the that timeline fuzzy, doesn't work. fuzzy, yeah. They, they, they said it's fuzzy and they just worked with that, which isn't great to hear, honestly, when, when the director says that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, and it's, you know, there's, and nothing is likely to change about that. They're, you know, they're definitely appealing to a wider audience than us. And they're not going to listen to us. You know, they're not going to listen to our complaints. He said that in the article. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And and I don't, you know, on some level, I don't blame him, but I, it also upsets me. And it's like, I wish we would have, but I also am like, well, 
you know? Yeah, I mean, if there were 16 million people watching, what are what are rabid fans like us? Maybe one million of that, maybe, yeah. you know? So it, it makes sense, as much as we've talked about this in the past, that often shows, and Game of Thrones in particular, can appeal to the lowest common denominator of fan because it's already very hard material for a lot of, you know, casual fans to understand. They don't know characters' names and stuff like that. I noticed that a, f a few different friends of mine, more than one person in Facebook this week has asked, people who haven't read the books, do you know who Jon Snow's parents are? <laughs> and a lot of people didn't. Like, a lot of people didn't, which just goes to show not only that this hasn't been super well communicated, but that it just goes to show how hard it is for them to communicate things to the casual fans. And that just kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a problem for them as showrunners. Like, well, how do we balance being true to the material that they don't actually have? You know, they have George's story points. I'm sure he told them a lot of these things and some of them they used, some of them they invented and it's difficult to tell what's what, but some of it is just, well, yeah, we're, we can't sit down with HBO executives and say, yeah, we're catering to the book fans. <laughs> They'd be like, why? <laughs> why are you doing that? You know, and, but there's a balance. So somewhere it's got to fall somewhere in between. And I don't know how well they've actually done that. Who knows? We weren't part of their discussions. <laughs> Anyways, we got a super chat from Alex M. The accelerated plot line is the biggest issue. We would have at least known something about the Night's Watch brothers that died on the lake in episode six, but the plot line is moving at such a relentless pace. And I agree with it. Those people meant nothing to anyone. We barely saw them at all. We hardly knew how many were even with them. Yeah, it seems like it was five because they kept referring to 12 in the behind the scenes as mm -hmm. if there were 12 of them. So I guess there were five you know, nameless wildlings. And one of them had some lines in the behind the scenes. The guy who does the trust fall, he falls off the back of the rock into, you know, John tries to grab him and he falls backwards into the whites. That was a real trust fall. The, the actor whites all caught him. <laughs> and, but yeah, so he had lines in the behind the scenes, but during the, I have no idea who that guy was though. <laughs> and for me, it really was in stark contrast to I mean, think of Hard Home with Carsey, where they did so much with so little and made us care so much about her character that it meant something when she died. And so to see that they were capable of doing that and then they weren't able to do that for this episode makes me all the more disappointed, honestly. Another yes. super chat. Hey, Sandrixian, who has some great shirts out there. Yes, she if you does. look up her Twitter, she says, I'm at work and can't watch this all live, so I thought I'd just send love. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. We send love back. But uh, I guess we should move on. Yeah, we'll certainly so, have more to say about all of the all of this as we go forward. So like I said at the beginning, what we do when we are faced with an episode that we didn't love, we have other things to do. Our one of the things I take on as like a, a personal task that we all kind of I think in agree, it's better when we're having fun. So my goal here is to bring up things that relate to this episode that we can talk about like a book topic. So this is, we have more quotes than usual today. We're going to talk a lot about the nature of the others and the whites, dragon glass, the concept of an ice dragon. There's a lot of foreshadowing for that in the books. Even if it plays out a lot differently, this isn't exactly out of nowhere. So let's do that. But first, looks like we have another super chat. Yeah, we do. From Lady Lazara So. Oh, hey there. She said, <laughs> we have to suspend disbelief and be done. D&D &D have no choice. This is a convoluted story with a ton of moving parts. The sheer glee the show has given is worth it. I think we should be kissing the showrunners collective ass. <laughs> well, As it see, is nice to them that we have a show. Yes. It is true. We wouldn't have anything. I, I, di I, disagree, <laughs> I disagree with that one. <laughs> I, I, I think if... 
I think if it had been, you know, the, the kind of time issue and that kind of thing, then yeah, suspend your disbelief. But I, I think we pointed to, to deeper problems in the kind of characterization that, that you know, really, really affects the enjoyment of the show, whether, you, you know, you're a book expert or not. You should be concerned about the, you know, characterization and the arcs because, well, for me, that's what brought me to the show. <laughs> I'll the say book. that uh, in terms of kissing their asses, I have a bit of bitterness because they're clearly just done. Like, they're just tired of making the show, and I, I don't exactly blame them because it's a very difficult show to create. It's 365 days a year. It is their jobs, and they have families. But you could pass the reins on to a different showrunner. You could add another showrunner. There's other options besides just rushing through the material, and I can't exactly uh, be grateful for them when I think they're rushing through things that shouldn't be rushed through. Yeah, but I absolutely agree that she's right, that there is a lot to be thankful for. A ton, this community exists in large part because of the show. Certainly the books are what made it all begin. But the community grew to many times its original small size because of that, because of the show. It brought a lot of people to the books. There's one thing I'll never forget. I'll always be thankful for that, no matter how much they mess up my perceptions of what I think the material should be. That's always something I will be thankful for. So I think that's good. Can I, can, I, can I add that, you know, it's perfectly fine to have different opinions on the show as well. And I totally respect anyone, uh, anyone um, that likes it or, you know, it, this isn't a kind of personal bitch fest. It's like, you know, uh, like as he said, we, we're here to kind of analyze and have fun. And, you know, I think if people really enjoyed it we, don't, we really don't want to bum them out man i really enjoyed some of this show just, this episode just not all of it that's all yeah yeah that's another thing about game of thrones is that very often sometimes episodes are divisive because people hated one scene but other people didn't really mind that scene and loved a different scene and these two scenes aren't connected to each other at all so people are like judging one aspect of it while someone else is judging a different aspect of it and those two things don't really meet because you're you know some people love the one storyline and hated another but some people didn't care about that first storyline in the first place so the fact that it's messed up they don't you know maybe they'd already given up on that some people have gave up on Arya long ago you know <laughs> like they they ruined Arya back in season five I don't you know it's, it's what this is just an extension of that so I can kind of see where some people are coming from in that regard um we should announce about we need to announce about the uh the, the party thing unfortunately yes um, <laughs> uh we had gotten a super chat from lady czar as well saying she was excited for sunday to see us but we're not going to new york after all uh it should still be happening at a different venue but it was just too last minute for us as it turned out for us to book our flights and all that and the bell house canceled the, the original venue we were supposed to be at canceled us just because their they internet speed us. to be clear yeah, it, it was wasn't a, anything it was a yeah. pretty sketchy reason and it was very last minute zach and Haley from the Manimals are still going to have a party. They are deciding on a venue today, so I hope that y'all in the New York area will still go because it will be a really fun time. But it's become too expensive for us, and you know we just we can't justify the cost. So, but we'll be at Dragon Con here in Atlanta next yeah. week. If anyone wants to say hi, send us an email or something. So yeah, so we're bummed out that we're not going, but y'all should still go and support Game of Bones and this effort because uh, it's. I imagine it'll still be a blast, even even without us. <laughs> We also have a super chat from yes uh, from X, from Alexander Wilson. What's your opinion on Alan Taylor saying that George R. R. Martin told them that John and Danny meeting is the point of the story? Ooh, I would say question. he said John and Danny is the point of the story, not the meeting necessarily. And yeah. I'd I'd say 
any book reader really knew that. But obviously directors in season one didn't know that. Like he said in the article, this is just some, some bastard, you know, who who would think that he is the, you know, main character really of the show at that point. Yeah. And so that was awesome. Alan Taylor said, I thought it was about Rob and Ned. <laughs> that was back in season one. Yeah, that is what he said. That was so funny. <laughs> so, but well done. I do think that's pretty interesting. Well and done, of course, George. we can't take, we got to take this comment with a grain of salt because it's second hand. Maybe George didn't say it quite that literally. You know, we, we have to, we can't be sure that's exactly how George said it, but it's still a very telling comment. But also, like Ashea says, they do seem like the central, the most Song of Ice and Fire type candidates here you know as far as that goes they seem like the characters that most fit certainly that. lots of book readers think bran is on par potentially with them it's pretty po- you know popular but this says something that he didn't say bran was back in 1993 george said the five characters that he expected to survive till the end were john and danny and Tyrion and Arya and someone else <laughs> <laughs> not okay. sansa though it wasn't yeah, sansa like- Dun, so, dun, dun, Bran? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, Bran. Yeah, I think it was okay. Bran. Yeah. So that, but of course, that was in 1993. Now, so what George decided back then has absolutely changed since then. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that that's still the case. But it was his original intent, and that's interesting. That is very interesting. So, uh, I think we have a few more announcements. We should get through our intro. Let's do the rest of our announcements. Yes, we're we're doing a lot of our coverage before the intro today. So we have our, uh, on lighter news, we have our George R. R. Martin box giveaway still underway. Email westeroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com. Again, that's westeroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com. You will be entered for all the drawings. The drawings happen on Saturday, but we'll let you know if you won, even if you don't make our Saturday Predictions and Theories episode with Sean. And so far we've given one of the boxes out. There'll be two more given out this week. They contain a lot of really cool stuff, maps, books um there's a letter there's rob's uh will not rob's will robert brathian's will well it's still rob right (laughs) and it's just really good stuff they they retail for 75 dollars for the smaller box and 250 for the bigger one and uh, like i said just enter yeah we've gotten like 700 giveaway entries so far so not that many so you have a shot you definitely have a shot so get in there if you feel inclined and you might be one of the lucky ones. And you don't have to enter multiple times. Enter once and you'll be entered for all the drawings. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to give thanks to our patrons. We have had a nice surge on Patreon this season. We're very thankful for that. It enables us. Partly it's why we started doing the Saturday episodes. Got more time, got more interest. And so we put out more content. And that is that tends to be how things work. So thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first mm-hmm. sword. Thanks also to Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, rider of Maz Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, also helping us out with the chat moderate today. Thanks very much for that. Telenius the Talon is king of Gagasos, rider of Telerius, red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and Jinx of House Lier, green queen of the Rainwood, rider of Erogenia, an albino dragon with a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Yes, yes. Also, thanks to Radio Westeros' patrons. I know some of them have sent some questions in as well, and that's great. We love having this community experience of both of our podcasts coming together. Even when the show, uh, you know, is not doing very well, we still have a great time chatting with you guys. And I'm thankful to your patrons for making your show um, a professional engagement for you all, because that enables you to focus on it, which is great, because we love your content. And as well... Um, If you are a Radio Westeros patron and you want to get access to the Q&A portion of this episode, 
What we've been doing is, since these live streams run really long, we take the Q&A portion and cut it and, and publish it separately on Patreon for any patrons. If you're a Radio Westeros patron and you want that, just get, get in contact with either us or Radio Westeros and we'll give you access to that behind the scenes because you deserve it. Okay, so that's all of the announcements. Let's get into the regular bit of the material. So let's start with Winterfell. Let's do that. Winterfell is... Uh, yeah, we've got this scene with Arya and Sansa here. That's really, I mean, uh, what we start out with. And we'd wondered a lot last week about what could be going on. I know you speculated a lot in particular about that. Uh, we got a super chat. I guess we'll stop this. From the Merchant Prince. <laughs> Hi, all. Thanks for the shout-out last week. Just my two cents. I think y'all are usually pretty positive about the show, so don't feel bad being more critical this time around. Right. It's true. It's that. true. You know, when the show's done brilliant things, we've I've given ten out of tens for episodes. You know, I wouldn't do that with any other show on TV. I don't think so. That says something. I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. I definitely think so too. So in this Arya Sansa scene, we get this archery at night anecdote, and I wanted to highlight this idea that I saw brought up a few times in our chat on Monday, which is the idea that this could be foreshadowing. Arya could use this archery skill in some way. We haven't seen whether her skills are still good now, but she certainly practiced for a while and she's good at practicing her, you know, combat skills and having good archers with, you know, dragonglass uh, arrowheads could be very useful. So I'm, I will be looking out for her doing that. Yeah, I thought this was the most interesting part of the Arya Sansa interactions. This, this anecdote about Ned, you know, watching her at night was really good. That was, I thought that was... It started off, this, this this part of the episode started off really well. And then the Arya Sansa stuff kind of, yeah, it started to go a little off, off the rails maybe a little bit. But, you know, I have mixed feelings about it because there's just, you know, Sansa and Arya have never gotten along. So to me, the idea of them not getting along makes sense. It doesn't mean it has to go that way. But this is more than just not getting along. Yeah. <laughs> it is more <laughs> This than isn't that. just sibling rivalry or sibling squabbles. This isn't just the they're having them having different personalities. You know, and they are. They do have very different personalities, but this is more than that. And we it, it does kind of go against some of what we've gotten from the books. You had some great stuff about that, Lady Gwen. Uh yeah, you, you know, I agree with a, a lot of what you both said or so far. Um I think in the books, though, we have lines like Arya thinking, when she thought of seeing Rob's face again, Arya had to bite her lip. I want to see John too, and Bran, and Rickon, and Mother. Even Sansa, I'll kiss her and beg her pardons like a proper lady. She'll like that. <laughs> it's very sweet, kind of, that's early, that's from Clash of Kings, so it's before she goes to Braavos and everything. But it, I think they continue to think about each other in ways that show that they miss each other. Um, and I, it really, in my feeling in the books is that this sort of thing just maintains the hope that one day these sisters are going to reconnect, um, which is what I thought we had going on this season. So, you know, I not I, we started with this, which is my most negative sort of um, storyline of the episode. My, my feelings are the most negative towards this one. Um so I don't mean to be all negative, but I, I have to say that I'm just disappointed that this storyline um, for these two sisters being reunited has basically degenerated into a bitch fest. It just feels like worse than regression. Like you said, Aziz, worse than sim sibling rivalry and what they, you know, the sort of arguments they used to have. 
if there's some secret plotting that's going on and this is really all just a tension device to build up to Sansa taking Littlefinger down, I still think that it's all at a terrible cost and it really does a disservice to the arcs that these two sisters have been on, you know, and the possibility of them reconnecting. I my fear is that the showrunners have completely missed an opportunity to rise above stereotypes about women and female friendships and show us a real sisterhood storyline, which would have is being side by side with the other major thread in this episode of, you know, loosely connected brotherhood bonding in the face of danger really was a great opportunity. And I feel bad that they missed that. It's funny that you bring that up about sisterhood, Lady Gwen, because you know the other example we got of sisters that they made into conflict? They <laughs> <laughs> were very close. And, and really all I they did think was about bitch that at each other. Brought this right? up. I mean, that's funny. It's true. I mean, Lysa and Catelyn, that's, you know, that's yeah. that, they had yeah. a lot of contention so, there, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, the thing there with some of these is that's, George's baseline mm. that you know you can't put that on the showrunners you know Catelyn and Lysa yeah. not getting along yeah. that, that's straight from the books and this yeah. Arya yeah. Sansa stuff we don't right. know what George's intent was yet it's for all we know this is what George intended maybe yeah. not this yeah. exact way but some sort of conflict between mm -hmm. Arya and Sansa might yeah. be something George told them to do or said he was going to do but he would carry it out a lot differently. Yeah, I mean, it's easy for Arya to think that she would be happy to see Sansa again, but we all know that maybe you miss your brother or your mother or something, and when you actually see them, it just yes. goes right back to nitpicking at each other and being, you know, I, I, we all have that kind of relationship with yeah. someone, I think, where, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's possible, and now Lady Gwen, your next bit here, I want to preface by saying, Yes. It may not be too late. As much as they're squabbling right now, they haven't gone past the point of no return, and maybe they'll get it together. Maybe we will see some sort of sisterhood arc, some sort of them working together and getting along. It's not no, too I, late I still for have that. hope. I yeah. do, actually. Yes. I do, too. I have yeah, hope. I, do too. I have hope, too. When she gave, and I think what we're all talking about is when Arya gave Sansa, or at least this is what gave me hope, when she gave her the dagger... In, when they had that sort of confrontation in Arya's room. Uh, that was the th one thing that gave me hope, that they did not miss um, all this, the, the stuff that's foreshadowed. And I, we have this beautiful line from Ned talking to Arya back in Game of Thrones. And we know that they've included at least part of this line in episode seven, because we've talked about it. It featured in, um, it featured in the preseason trailers and we haven't seen it yet so we know that part of this is coming but I'll, I will read the whole passage because it's really beautiful about the sisters and the family let me tell you something about wolves child when the snows fall and the white winds blow the lone wolf dies but the pack survives summer is the time for squabbles in winter we must protect one another keep each other warm share our strengths so if you must Arya hate those who would truly do us harm Septimordain is a good woman, and Sansa, Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through your hearts. You need her as she needs you. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I am hoping that things will uh, be more positive in the future, but I wanted to bring up a couple things. One was I liked Sean's point from our show-only episode about how Arya is likely also still holding on to this Micah and Nymeria 
betrayal. Even though she doesn't bring it up, I think that she definitely would have that on her mind when she's thinking about Sansa siding with the Lannisters. And I think that this is emphasized by the meat in the background of that shot, which Sean pointed out. I thought that was, I just thought it was a brilliant uh, angle that he looked at. (laughs) Um, I was pretty unhappy with the scene overall, despite I thought their acting was great. I've seen a lot of complaints about it. Maybe uh, I liked it personally. I, I, Arya, just her teary eyed uh, look was really emotional to me. But when they bring up this uh, scene with Ned's death, I think it's worth noting that Arya did see Sansa start to struggle. I went back and looked. She saw Arya start to struggle and protest and have to be held back by the Kingsguard just before Arya herself sprung into action. And Yorin struck kept her, yeah. <laughs> I, and so I'm not surprised at all that Arya would remember the bitterest aspect because it was such a traumatic experience that was so long ago she wouldn't remember everything clearly. But Arya did try to run to the rescue and Sansa didn't just stand there. So yeah. uh, there's that. <laughs> But there was one line in particular that I also really liked, which was, you never would have survived what I survived. I guess we'll never know. Now, this is a very common thought in the fandom. I can't tell you how many different articles and essays I've read about this very thought about that they could not have switched places. So that was yeah, great. That's a good point. Yeah. Imagine Arya going through what Sansa went through, like trying to pretend to be courtly and just like keeping it all together and just like biding her time. Or imagine Sansa like at the House of Black and White. That's just talk about fish out of water. Those, those both are kind of uh, hard mm-hmm. to imagine. <laughs> Bring up someone pointed out something that I saw very funny memes about, which was Arya saying she would die before serving the Lannisters, <laughs> which is a lie. She served time with Heron Hall. <laughs> yeah, brought him his <laughs> and everything. <laughs> yeah. But I like the idea that Arya knew that that was a lie. That she was playing the lion game with her. I, I, I That maybe that wasn't just a mistake or anything. Oh, clever, mm, clever. Yes. Yeah, that is pretty cool. What did you think about this, Yuck Boy? Okay, Arya and Sansa. I, I, I re-watched it just before. So I was watching Arya and... Kind of her cold demeanor, and she she stands with her arms behind her back now, and she's got this penchant for cutting off people's faces. It really reminded <laughs> me of Hannibal Lecter. I don't know. If that's, that can't be good, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, I think her kind of new persona is, is disappointing me because I know I understand, you know, what the trauma she's been through, and maybe they're you know depicting this kind of dark soul that she's she's come to have, but. You know, I really like the the notion of her kind of healing and rehumanizing as we thought. Remember when she was at the, the end of the crossroads and she heard about her family and you saw a spark of humanity in her eye. And now she's kind of like acting like a bit of a psycho. So, you know, it, it is a little bit disappointing. And like we were always saying, we hope by the end of season eight that, that she, she could rehumanize and could make these connections and shed her kind of dark heart, I think. It's interesting to consider if you if you think about Arya's point of view and things that Arya doesn't even know yet and how it would make things a lot worse between them if she did. Consider the thing that a lot of us were wondering about last year, which is that Sansa never told Jon about the Vale Knights. If you look at Sansa as someone who is playing a long game and you look at her as 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 selfish. It's hard to do because a lot of people like Sansa and it's hard to look at her selfish. If you look consider her actions in light of her trying to do what Arya says she's trying to do, which is take the north for herself, it actually fits really well. Her not telling John about the Vale Knights, her not there's a, you know her, her the way she's managing the situation with Arya and the way she's you know just 
trying to keep everything in line and allow other people to, to talk about her as a great leader, it almost looks like Sansa's the one who's the bad guy here and that Arya's the good guy. She's just handling it in a really dark way. I think that's an interesting interpretation. I have, I have to think about it more. I don't fully endorse it, but I think it's an interesting idea. And definitely, it's something that people said, talk a lot about. Like, why didn't Sansa tell Jon about the Vale Knights? And a lot of people just chalked it up to bad writing. And for me, that's... I don't like going there. I don't like just saying, oh, it's bad writing. Sometimes it is just bad writing. But you cannot assume that. It's really hard to assume that, especially at the time. So I'll have to wait and see what Sansa does. Really want to see how she reacts to John bending the knee. That's going to be a pretty big deal. And that's also going to be a pretty big deal to Arya. Our co-writer Joe Buckley wrote an essay on Sansa and Arya this week at Tower of the Hand. Worth checking out. Something he pointed out that I thought was very astute is that Arya and Sansa are each kind of following in one of their parents' footsteps. That Arya is doing more like how Ned would do. Not the violent threats, but the the lack of nuance. You know, Ned was like, no, Stannis is king and there's no way around that. Ned was, this person has to be executed, doesn't matter. You know, as, as kind and gentle as Ned was, he's a real stickler for the rules. And that's kind of how Arya is behaving in a lot of ways. And Sansa is kind of trying to keep everyone happy and kind of keep it all together, which is kind of like Catelyn. You know, it's kind of like the mother. So they're kind of both taking after a different one of their parents in a way. In some ways, those comparisons don't work, but in some ways they work really well. So I, I like I like that. I think it's a good uh, good thing to think about. I think Sansa, Sansa's had one of the most punishing arcs for a female, most brutal, if you think back to what she's been through. And, you, you know, in TV history, can you name a female whose arc has been, you know, continually brutal to her and you know what we're what we're really still waiting for is a payoff so god damn it i, I hope there's a payoff <laughs> to this sansa arc the, my, my worry is that the, the the payoff comes but it's it's not enough to kind of you know make it worthwhile it's like you look back and think well after all she's been through it's you know it's not enough but you know we'll have to wait and see to to judge that yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering where Bran was during all this, and I thought it was notable that Sansa and Arya don't involve him in this dispute, at least not on screen. But I, I have to imagine that they talked to him about some of this stuff. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, I guess he's just so not Bran-like that I wonder if it's just kind of difficult, if they just don't want to, you know... Yeah, I, I don't know. I have hope that there's something going on there. You know? I would think Arya wouldn't be creeped out by Bran, but Sansa clearly was yeah. creeped out by Bran. So maybe maybe there should be more Arya-Bran interaction. Yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll see what we have in this finale. Yeah, definitely. We have from a uh, question from Greg Phillips sent in ahead. Please discuss how the Arya-Sansa scenes would fit a lot more if their initial meeting in the crypt was more rocky. Yeah, see, that's a great point. The, part of the reason this arc has gone has seemed weird is because their initial meeting in the crypt was so positive. And then it went bad for eh, maybe sketchy reasons. You know, I can see Arya being upset with Sansa not being rougher with those lords, but Sansa has good reasons for doing it the way she did, too. And Arya's just so unnuanced about her positions here. But if that initial meeting in the crypt had been... You know, not such a great reunion if, if Arya and Sansa started sniping at each other right away, which they almost did. You know, like, you shouldn't have left the guards. You need new guards, you know. And then they hugged, and it seemed like it was okay. But if that hadn't ended on a positive note, the, re this, the rest of this would fit, or at least feel better. It would still be awkward, I think. But it would at least be consistent. So that's, a, I think that's a good point. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add to that, but I hadn't thought of that. And I thought that was a, an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably why we're feeling disappointed because we, we felt like things were going in a positive direction and then, you know, all of a sudden, 
Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Without little explanation. I see if some people talk about this as like a bolt-on, not Bolton, but like they just needed something for Arya and Sansa to do. So having conflict <laughs> mm-hmm. is a thing, you know? It's like, uh... Yeah, maybe that's why they're doing it. Maybe they're just trying to buy their time. I mean, time. think about the things you guys were speculating about, speculating about last week. There's other things for them to learn about. Bran could have a vision of what's going on with Jon. They could be all, you know, worried about yes. Bran. And Bran could be the one to send the letter to Daenerys. There's all sorts of ways that uh, they could have added conflict that wasn't between those two. Uh, obviously, that's what the decision they went with that they thought was best, though. Uh, we got a super chat from Mines Guinness. How will Sansa and Arya react to Jon bending the knee? Thanks, Joey. I don't think Arya will care. I don't I, think it matters to her. I think Arya is going to, because she trusts John so much, she'll assume he did it for the right reasons. Yeah. You know? and, and she doesn't have anything invested in them being independent or anything like no, that. No, yeah. She doesn't care about politics much She would at care all. if it was to Cersei Lannister. <laughs> yes. But, you know, like, she has grudges against people, but she has no connection to Daenerys. She, yeah, she doesn't know Daenerys from, from Adam. I mean, she's probably heard of her, and that's about it. She's never, I don't think she's ever mentioned her or talked <laughs> about her. <laughs> so, I think, yeah, I think Arya will, will back John on anything. But Sansa might not, and that might just deepen this divide. And, of course, Littlefinger coming into the picture here is pretty interesting. Um, He's probably going to push for whatever causes the conflict and gives him the chaos that he's looking for, and he wants Sansa to trust him. (laughs) What do you think about Sansa Littlefinger there, uh, Lady Gwen? Uh, Well, first of all, what you just said, Sansa trusting Littlefinger, I do not see how she could for a second after, you know, what he's what he's done with her it's just so in terms of story that just doesn't make any sense to me um that she is trusting him so that's where also i have a little bit of hope that there's something else going on here mm-hmm. in that specific scene when they were talking um the suggestion that brienne could help that she's the reminder that she's honor bound by her vow to cat to intercede if one of these sisters is planning to harm the other really stands out to me as i'm sure it did to you and everybody else uh basically i thought about it a lot i i think you know it's got to be one of two things it's either he's saying that brienne could protect sansa from aria which is the obvious you know keep her around she'll protect you in case things go weird with Arya but there could also be this subtle suggestion that she be sent away in order to clear the way for Sansa to get rid of Arya Mm -hmm. which in light of what happens later on is something interesting to consider yeah so I had the question of what do you guys think? Do you think Sansa is, whether intentionally or not, doing what Littlefinger intends? Or do you think she's sending Brienne away is more against it? What are you guys' gut reaction? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to the books, you know, just off of memory um, from some of the Elaine chapters where um, you get her internal point of view and she is consciously feeding Littlefinger what she knows he wants to hear or doing what she knows he wants her to do. But because you have her point of view, you know that that's not necessarily, that she's just doing it for that reason, that mm-hmm. she may have other motivations to do that. So yeah. I think that's yeah. probably similar to what I think, that Littlefinger maybe isn't, maybe she got the fact that Littlefinger was hinting that she should get rid of Brienne. And so she's doing it, but not because of what he's saying. She's doing it because she wants to put him at ease, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. go along with it. And she doesn't think it's a gamble, maybe. And she does really need someone she trusts to go south as a representative. Like, that's yeah. a tr- that's true. She didn't just find that an said, excuse to send her I south. I feel like John should contact her and be like, I'm 
going. I'm your representative, but I, <laughs> right. clearly there's some miscommunication going like, on. This yeah, is I mean, a... Cersei's letter came first, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, John is bad at communicating. Yeah, <laughs> you think they would send a letter before they left Eastwatch on that boat or something? Yes, because clearly they can send yeah. messages from there because it's we've right. already seen it. You know, that's what yeah. Gendry's whole run was all about: mm -hmm. getting a raven. Sent Maybe to that's Daenerys. where Gendry is <laughs> on his way to Winterfell. <laughs> Was, yeah, 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 we're going to talk about that later, but I'll mention it now that notably Davos did bring up that uh, when, he, when he was calling Gendry Clovis, that you're just, a, a, you know, going off to the Winterfell Forges. Mm -hmm. So whether that was the plan at one point, it, clearly Gendry like swore himself to John uh, and was tied to him. So he might stick with him, but maybe he's going to Winterfell. Good old Clovis. <laughs> Clovis needs to hang out with Cooper and Darnell and all the other... How come they always come up with, like, regular English names to stick into Westeros for these fake names, you know? <laughs> There's no one named Cooper or Darnell in Westeros. Or Clovis, even. Does that mean Brother Ray? That was a fake name? <laughs> and Brother Ray, Ray right. Yeah, Brother Ray. There's no shortage of Westerosi names they could pull from. It's always <laughs> kind of strange. So, so another... There's an interesting theme. You know, of course, sometimes when the showrunners put bad stuff in, it kind of masks a few of the clever things they do because we're all a little distracted by bad stuff. And that's, you know, that's partly on them. <laughs> but it is, you know, as our, you know, in our role as anal uh, analyzing the show, we have to look for these things. And one of the cool things here is Arya and Sansa's discussion on anger versus fear came up in several places this episode, which I thought was really neat. It was an underlying theme that, you know, maybe was kind of easy to miss because what happens? They have that conversation. Arya says, I'll choose anger over fear. And then Sansa maybe acts on fear by sending Brienne and is obviously afraid of Arya, or at least seemingly afraid of Arya. And so she might be acting on fear here. Especially, as she expresses a little finger, she's like, I don't even know who she is anymore. And of course, she's terrified of her with the, with the dagger stuff. And also, this comes up again later with Sandor Clegane. He's too afraid to act at the fire bear. But then when they're just sitting there on the frozen lake, he gets mad. He's just angry that they're sitting there trapped. He's like a like a trapped rat or trapped dog in this <laughs> case. And he just lashes out and, you know, throws the rock. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of an interesting, like, the combination of, of anger versus fear as a theme, a uh, hidden theme of this episode was pretty cool. I like that. So let us talk a little more about uh, Sansa and Brienne. The comments here, the way Sansa talks to Brienne is pretty rough. I, I think no one's happy to see Sansa speak to Brienne like this. Um, and it was interesting that she burned the letter after reading it, which I thought maybe was just uh, shows her state of mind. You know, she burns the letter right after being burned by an old letter. So, <laughs> you know, by Arya finding this old letter. So maybe she's just like, all right. I'm burning everything. I don't want any. <laughs> Nothing's coming back to haunt me. You know, like, I'm just burning it all. You know? <laughs> so, what did, was it, did you guys have any takes on uh, this whole situation? Like, Brienne being the representative. I mean, she needs a representative that she trusts, but Brienne isn't exactly... She's not politically savvy. Yeah, this isn't... I can see her trusting her, but maybe... She, she can trust her, and she can trust her to protect herself, and can, she can trust her to have someone there to watch her back. And Jamie. As she said. Yes. So I think there's a few reasons, but no, I, I think it's a mistake to trust Brienne, you know, politically. But she doesn't have any other choices, really. Yeah, I don't know who else she could send. She's certainly not going to send Littlefinger. That would be that would be nuts. Yeah. <laughs> he might not go either. He'd probably be like, um, you should send. I'm yeah. going to argue against this decision. 
Also, I mean, she even tried to leave Podrick there, and, she, and, and Sansa was even like, no, don't even do that, which is mm. maybe pushes things towards that whole Arya, Sansa might try to get rid of Arya thing, which is, yeah. wow, that'd be surprising. But, I still tend mm-hmm. to think that she's, you know, she's looking out for them, that this is, I, I'm still being positive about it. I think that things are going to work out here. Yeah, there's definitely the line, the trailer line is, is telling. Yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have a question from Elise. Why would Sansa be invited to King's Landing anyways? The North is already on board, plus John would be there already. Well, this might be part of Cersei's game. You know, Cersei maybe doesn't recognize John. Maybe she recognizes Sansa only. I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, Alex M. Super Chat. Sansa talks to Brienne like Catelyn would. Well, mm. she did, did send her to King's Landing just like Catelyn did. <laughs> uh, there's that. That's a good point. <laughs> What do you guys think of this whole, do you think, is this part of Sansa's spiel saying she doesn't need protection? Was that just a, a, a way to get Brienne to stop making this line of, of dispute? Mm. Or do you think Sansa's being naive about I, I think needing protection? I think it's just what she had to say. I don't think she's being naive. But maybe mm. that's me looking on the bright side of things. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, to me it felt like, you know, that sort of <laughs> actually reminded me of, I just realized what it reminded me of, when Arya had to chase Nymeria away. Yeah, that you know, is what it, made it was. Me think of. It yeah. was very much of the like, I'm doing this for your own good, or you know, you really have to go. So I'm going to be really mean and just make you leave. Yeah. That's um, a great comparison. Yeah. So you know, I, Brienne clearly doesn't trust Littlefinger, but Sansa's, you know, not. She professes to not be worried about that. She's got her guards, who Brienne also doesn't trust, but you know. She's gonna make her go anyway, so that that's kind of how I how I read it. Although her, you know, it's hard to say. Is is this lending credence to Sansa wanting her away so that she can deal with Arya, or is there and something else going on? Yeah, I was thinking. I'm really not sure if this is gonna kind of make Sansa the typical damsel in distress that she's kind of always been and. Has kind of got a bit old now, hasn't it? To be honest, or or is it a kind of device to allow Sansa to move out of that role where you know she her bodyguard goes and she grows it into you know this kind of fully autonomous character that you're really mm-hmm. you know uh, pining for all this time. Let's mm-hmm. pray for the latter. Eh? Yes. <laughs> another uh, another uh, interesting catch here by Joe Buckley is that Sansa trusting over much in her guards if that's what she's yeah, doing what she's is doing. a parallel to little to ned trusting the city watch on Littlefinger's behalf or because of Littlefinger, <laughs> it's mm. like because mm, Littlefinger is there and he might be corrupting the guards or who knows what mm-hmm. he's doing uh it's certainly possible that's a that's a cool catch i like that uh, a couple people have brought up a few times in the chat the idea that Sansa wrote this letter or it was a fake letter or Littlefinger did or there's something going on. I'll say, how would, how would these people know about what's going on in King's Landing? We would have to have had a communication from John and company, which is possible off screen, but that's a lot of things happening off screen for them to do that. So I'm pretty, you know, confident that it was a real letter, though I liked the thought that people were... It's questioning even that. The small chance that this Littlefinger, I think, is maybe legit, but Littlefinger doesn't want Sansa to leave. Maybe he just knows she wouldn't. But the idea that Sansa wrote it and sent it herself is, I think, is it doesn't work at all because she burned it. Like yeah. she didn't even show it to anyone else. She doesn't, you know. <laughs> she could have <laughs> just said she got the letter. She didn't have to show anyone it. Yeah, uh, but, but that would mean the Maester is complicit yeah. in this too. You know, yeah. got the Ma- she got the Maester to lie, which is possible, but yeah. that's it, it. It stretches credibility a bit. It's certainly not impossible, but yeah. Mm. Let's see here. Mm. 
So, Lady Gwen, you noticed uh, a particular reunion that you're uh, maybe looking forward to, or at least uh, curious about? Yeah, I think we probably, maybe a lot of us are, because let's talk about something fun. Um, Brienne going <laughs> to King's Landing, really, it sets up her reunion with Jamie. It's They mention it right there, but mm. also with Sandor. Uh, yeah. Be there, so, yeah. Um, that's we have more characters together yeah. in one place than we've ever seen. Yes. I'm really disappointed that Tormund isn't going <laughs> south. Not just because I wanted the Brienne reunion with Jamie around two and all that, but because it would have been great to see another wildling reaction to the south like we had with Gilly, which I thought was a great moment that we had before. Mm-hmm. And this would be Tormund reacting to King's Landing. Yeah. It would be so funny and, and great, but really he has <laughs> something to do at Eastwatch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and another interesting potential reunion here is Tyrion and Podrick. Because yes. since Podrick is going south too, since Sansa didn't want him around, then that sets that potential up, which is cool. And Podrick uh, with Bronn. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's so cool. there's a little bit of that. We had a super chat earlier asking if we'll see Ghost again. Well, I really don't think we'll see Ghost this season because John is going to King's Landing. And I don't think John's going to go back from King's Landing to Winterfell in, in this episode. So, But I, I do think we'll see Ghost again in season yeah. eight because they, there was a, a shot of Ghost films that they, that they cut. So they at least didn't, they haven't at least thrown the idea of Ghost out entirely. Before we move on to the next section, we got a super chat from Daniel Hickey. Arya has always thought very little of Sansa, and Sansa genuinely is considering a power grab. Seems right to me that Arya is in John's corner. Well, I think there's no debating that Arya's in John's corner. Yeah, but, I do think that but, there's a chance that Sansa's going for power grab. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced, but it's absolutely a possibility. And... You know, some of her actions do potentially hit that way. And if Arya is as good as reading people as we're spo- we're being led to believe, then Arya might be reading that in Sansa. We might should be believing it because Arya is you know had this training, the Lion Game, and all that. So maybe that's why Arya feels this way is because she really does detect this in Sansa. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. We shall see. So I think it's time to move on to Dragonstone. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go to Dragonstone. There, I like the, this this line that kicks it off. It's like, you know what I like about you? I, I really don't. <laughs> I honestly don't. <laughs> and then they have this chat about heroism and heroes in general. And uh, Danny, we, we start to get even more hints about Danny's interest in Jon Snow, his interest in her. Danny says he's too little for me. And personally, I'm not a stripper by any, you know, any sense of the word, really. But I, I do have a soft spot for show Tyrion and Daenerys. In the books, I think there's kind of a big age difference. But uh, show Tyrion and Daenerys, uh, I think, have really good chemistry. So for me, this had me grinning a lot more than the John danny scenes, honestly. <laughs> I just really like them together. I wish that they could be together. But. It's clearly John Harris all the way. <laughs> There's a lot of things that point to a different style of government after all this is all said and done. You know, Tyrion is kind of hinting at something else like, you got to make plans, you got to do the succession, you got to all these concepts. And the fact that John can't, the John maybe can't have kids, and the Danny almost certainly can't have kids, it means they kind of have to do something else. So maybe it's kind of helping them. The, the, all these plot points about Daenerys and Jon and their ability to procreate might be part of pushing them towards another form of government. What did you uh, think about that, Yoke Boy? Yeah, when I watched it, it's easy. I got the same kind of feeling for for a few seconds, I think. And I thought the idea of a new political system might be appealing to Westeros after a kind of almost apocalypse that's, you know, that's inevitable kind of thing. Obviously... An emerging hero from the war would be a prime candidate for, you know, the people's choice. 
And, you know, the concept could be the writer's statement on, on positive progression um, politically and even part of the, the suite in the promised bittersweet um, ending to the story. Yeah. We had a super chat. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> It says, from Ryan Burns, thanks, Ryan. People asking, where's Ghost? Did you see Danny's coat? Shay's going to put it on screen in a minute yeah. so you can get the full oh, yeah, effect. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about this coat. Let me for, to me, I was I, for, my first thought is that it doesn't look that warm, really. But a couple of things. Maybe Danny has some hot blood in her. And two, she's riding a dragon. You know, you could imagine that that keeps her pretty warm. She doesn't leave the dragon. It spits fire and warms her. Yeah, her. like maybe it wasn't too cold. <laughs> but I was looking at that compared to all the really bulky furs that everyone else had. And I was like, I don't know if you're prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely need some earmuffs. But we, no one wears helmets or earmuffs. <laughs> if they have a name in this, in this show. I imagine I imagine dragons have got excellent central heating. So. <laughs> also, if you, also imagine, if you imagine dragons. <laughs> but uh, also you'll note uh, in this picture of Danny that she's got that little chain that she wears with her three dragons on it. How sad would it be if she took one off? Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm going to start making her two. Yeah, she won't do that. All the but, future uh, jewelry will be two-headed dragons. Uh, oh, so sad. Yeah, sorry about that, everyone. So how about this armistice? The I'm glad to see Tyrion saying that yeah, we don't trust I don't trust Cersei. Of course she's gonna do something. <laughs> what yeah. it's gonna be, I don't know. And yeah. you know, Tyrion thinks he's figured this out that Cersei's gonna do something, but has he figured out that Cersei knows that they know she's gonna do something? And thus her plan will be maybe a little extra meta because of that, or something that they can't prevent. I don't know. Yeah, to me it seems really, really silly to trust Cersei, especially with Tyrion involved. But I have to imagine that he's banking on Jaime's involvement as well, and that's why he's willing to do this. But I don't know. I, I it's this this, this plotline seems so silly to me. Yeah, the whole the whole idea of capturing a dead guy to, uh, to prove anything is a little odd. But I like where it's going in terms of how this has pulled people together and not everybody being in the same location. I think is pretty interesting. A super chat from Helene May. Can you please discuss the ramifications of Tyrion's advice to Danny if he is also in love with her? Feels like the filmmaking is pointing that way. I've definitely gotten a vibe, but again, I don't know if it's just that I like the two of them together and I think they have good chemistry. But I remember previous seasons when they were sitting together on this on the step and marine and there was a, a, I don't know a romantic tone to it so I, I do think side. that yeah on one side exactly <laughs> that, that he how can you not admire and be in love with this this amazing badass woman who woke dragons and looks like that I don't know I, I, of yeah. course he likes her <laughs> yeah it, it's it's the Tormund brand of romance. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very one very one side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> against someone with very blonde hair. <laughs> uh. But she, Ash, you really liked yeah. uh, how Tyrion yeah. counseled her here. Yeah, though. I did. I thought that was some really good advice, um, specifically for debating. It's true for war as well, but in terms of she's going to be there and she's going to need to make her case to them, he says, you need to take your enemy's side if you're going to see things the way they do. And you need to see things the way they do if you're going to anticipate their actions, respond effectively, and beat them. And that's just a simple, you know, anyone who's studied debate or anything like that will know that you have to have know what the counterpoints are going to be. It's true so in battle. Know your enemy. It's perfect. Yeah, it's a perfect uh, analogy. By the way, I think this advice really applies well to reacting to David and Dan's take on the show. 
<laughs> you need to take your enemy's side if you're going to see things the way they do. And you need to see things the way they do if you're going to anticipate their actions, respond effectively. Well, not the beat them part. We're not going to beat them, but. <laughs> uh, and I say that tongue in cheek, but it's really true yeah, because, well, you know, the production side of things is really difficult. and We don't know a lot of the things that's going on behind the scenes. I've got a question just that I thought of on the spur of the moment. Do you think Cersei's beyond doing another wild f- wildfire trick? Because I think I saw someone on Twitter like mention it, and it's just come into my head. Do you, do you think that she could try and kind of, you know, do do another version of what she did? It's it's possible. Um, I would be down on that idea because they've kind of already gone that route, and they would, you know, I get the logistics are problematic, but that hasn't stopped them before. So maybe that's not a great mm. counter argument. But I would I would think it's going to be something new. But I, mm-hmm. I'm really just guessing here. You know, I really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Counter argument would be she's clearly she's clearly present, which you know in the sept she yeah. was clearly staying away from it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was thinking more of the the, the troops. Yeah. Oh, of somehow those... bringing everybody in and then like the the mm-hmm. fleet in the bay yes. and the, the ones. Yeah, I'm I'm mm-hmm. suspicious. I'm most suspicious of the fleet of Euron's fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the big wild card to me because. I, but again, the dragons. You know, two dragons will be there, so it's mm-hmm. quite a gamble for her to just to do anything because then she'll just get torched, or mm-hmm. her army will get torched, or who knows what. It was so. It might have to be what we maybe should be thinking about is possibilities that would forestall that kind of reaction. In other words, like what could Cersei do that would would cancel their ability to react violently. And maybe like the only thing I could think of is taking Danny captive, you know? <laughs> That's the only thing that would keep the dragons from reacting. You know, taking Tyrion captive wouldn't do anything. Taking, you know Hey Danny knows what to do when she gets taken captive. <laughs> she did it with the Dithraki. Yeah, she'll just summon the dragon. yeah. So <laughs> just, uh, uh, yeah, so it's really stuff. it's tough to perceive here. I don't even have like I don't have a lot of great theories here. It's just uh it's kinda hard to predict, but I guess we'll have to see. It's worth remembering that King's Landing, you know, must get torched because of the House of the Undying vision. It seemed torched to me. Mm, that's true. Maybe that's, uh, yeah, if that's not the White Walkers doing that, then maybe it's... Uh... Yeah, which we have to suspect that it's possible, especially because the Night King has a dragon that we don't know if it, mm-hmm. if it spits fire or ice or what. Yeah, yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... The, uh, okay, so let's give some thanks. I want to give thanks to the History of Westeros Blood Riders, which consists of Koho Koei, Master of the Bow, called Sun Piercer, and Vorsaki, which means flame, who is the wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon glass hilt. And that's really cool to have, or sorry, dragon bone hilt. Very cool. Both of our Blood Riders are female. We feel very well protected by them with their weapons expertise. Also, we I want to give thanks to Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle as captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women. Dagron is Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, motto Resistance is Futile. Gary and Pike is wielder of Grave Embrace, a Valyrian Steel Axe, Captain of the Iron Wave, Iron's Kiss is Eternal. Chiron Carlsbane is Captain of the Stone Shields, the Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Captain Kithic Deadeye of the Scarlet Longbows, Pierced by Darkness. Caribou Shard, Captain of the Walking Drum. Yol Bolsan, May There Be a Road. Hema Helminth is ca- still Captain of the Whispering Children while also being uh, Shea's Captain of her Queensguard. Let Dead Men Tell, No Secrets. Lady Lajara Dajo is Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. 
Uh, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point. She is Master Archer and nicknamed the Iron Lily. Uh, Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. And Captain, oh sorry, Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood is Captain of the English Lions with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. We also have another super chat here. Zainab Kazemi, I hope I said that right. Thank you. Did the fated Viserion change your mind about the dragon riders, especially the ones who believe Tyrion is going to be a dragon rider? Well, Aziz, did it yeah. change your mind? Yeah, uh, it, it did a little bit because I, uh, this is, this is, um, this is tricky because if a dragon is going to die in the book, is it going to die? If it dies before it gets a rider, then that means there won't be three riders, three heads yeah. of the dragon, which is kind of hard, which is would be a big shock, a big surprise. Well, we'll have three riders. We'll have the night, you know, a, a, maybe a white walker if, if that happens. Sure, but I don't know that like, that's yes. what the dragon of three heads will have three heads prophecy was referring to. A third one being in the Night King would be yeah. kind of crazy, especially because well, I don't I think, think the Night King is even a character in the book. Well, I think it's notable that George said at one point that the third <laughs> rider wasn't necessarily a Targaryen. That's true. That and is so true. That a white walker isn't necessarily isn't a Targaryen. So. Yeah. But so the other interpretation could be that someone is going to go down with their dragon, you know, like maybe Tyrion or yeah, John. That, that is entirely true. possible. Or it could mean that this, and this is a theory we'll come to later, so I'm just going to mention it for now. And we'll go into detail on it later. That the White Walkers in the book make an ice dragon. It's a magical thing. And the Danny still has her. In other words, they don't make a dragon from a corpse. They just make a what? Because the, the ice dragon legend says that these things I, are much larger than regular dragons. I think he might have gone on record saying there's no ice dragon in the story. But I, I, this, the exact wording could, you know, he could have said there is no one, but yeah, there's going to be, you know, he, the way he said it. But I think he has said something about that. So maybe we'll look into that for next the time. fourth possibility. Yeah, you're right. There is uh, that we might need to look that up. The fourth possibility, and this is probably the least likely, is is that a dragon dies, is animated, and is still ridden by a, a human. Like, say, Jon Snow, because he's also undead. An undead rider with an undead dragon. Mm -hmm. That seems like... You can see why I think that's the most crackpot possibility. <laughs> but, the, so the, sh the long answer is, we'll get to more of these this later. The short answer yeah. is, yes, it does at least impact my thinking on the riders. Okay, so now from... Uh, Adam L. just joined live from the UK for the first time. Tweeted you guys a few times. You did great work. Was wondering if a Davos slash Danny, we both lost children conversation could happen. Would suit both. Oh, that's interesting. That's I like cool. the idea that, that they might talk about that. I don't, I don't see it happening to be perfectly honest, but I would like it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, Adam, by the way, we did, I did see some of your tweets and we got some of them grabbed for the document here. So we'll, we'll, we'll be bringing up some of your other points later. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that could bond over their losses and certainly Daenerys and losing a child because she sees them as her child, as she very clearly stated the episode previous to this, she could be feeling that same sort of, you know, emotions uh, wrapped up around this and it might create some different opportunities for her to bond with people in new ways. So that, that is very much fodder for some good interactions if they decide to go that way. Yeah. Um, oh, I missed a shout out that I. This was a new shout out. We have our queen in love and queen of love and beauty level, which is uh, a, rarely used, but it has a, a shout out coming here to Casey of House Chickawawa from Torment Giants Wang. Our okay. love is forever. It's our only Patreon level that allows you to have a shout out for someone else. I guess Torment found someone else. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How cool is this though? It comes up when people, right when people are mentioning Heron Hall, and then this comes up for the first time. So good, good timing for all of that. All right, so now, so I divided just as I did on on Monday for the show only review. I divided 
the beyond the wall scenes into two categories. We'll start with the conversations because those came first and they're very distinctly separate from the action. And then we'll talk about the action. And then from there, we'll go with aftermath and, and what's coming next and, and all these other things that we haven't talked about. So let's talk about the beyond the wall chats because I think personally, this was my probably my favorite <laughs> aspect of the episode. Yeah, this I conversation. Agree. We really looked forward to them and I, I, I was not disappointed. I mean, there were definitely, I definitely have some criticisms as I usually do. But overall, yeah, I give, you know, two thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, one thing I really liked in, this, in these interactions was Tormund saying, smart people don't come here looking for the dead, which I liked because <laughs> I think this whole plan to convince Cersei with a white is completely idiotic. <laughs> it's just from the very base level, this is a stupid plot line. To it me. was up there yeah. with, are you, gen- it was a, it was a meta commentary up there with, I thought Gendry was still rolling. You know, it's just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Self-referential. Right. <laughs> Word, Tormund. Uh, but then we get into this other scene with um, Gendry whining here. Yeah. And I, I mean, I liked this scene. It made me think uh, after the fact, I saw this funny text post. It was basically poking fun at the difference between the conflict between the Snow Squad being resolved so easily, despite things being so dire. I mean, they, you know, Gendry was almost killed because of this. And the conflict between Arya and Sansa, which really seems so petty in comparison, and I think it seems extra petty when you're comparing it to these people banding together. And it the, the post made me chuckle, but then I started to think about how it really shows how important the War for the Dawn is, that these people are coming together, and that Arya and Sansa really don't know what happening. That's a great point. And it's kind of funny that there's all these Southerners that have witnessed the Night King and his army of the dead before pretty much anyone, or maybe literally everyone, who is currently at Winterfell. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's like Tormund. See, Tormund seeing it first is fine, but Gendry and, and Daenerys? <laughs> and all these people like they know, like Arya and Sansa haven't seen the dead or the dragons yet. Yeah. And Jamie needed to see the dragons and, and Braun needed to see the dragons before they were like, wow, okay, now I really get how much of a problem we're faced with. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Daenerys. Daenerys flat out says that to John. She's like, you're right. You have to see it to believe it. And earlier in the season, Tyrion says, our minds weren't meant for just taking that in and mm-hmm. feeling it. You know, you have to see it to really react properly. And I think that's kind of interesting. That That is at least a, a slight saving grace of Sansa and Arya's bickering is that they haven't seen it yet. They yeah. don't know. They haven't had this same compelling reason to put aside their bickering that everybody else has. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another thing I really liked in this little interaction with Gendry there, which was Sandor telling Gendry to stop his whining because you know, they didn't kill him. And I thought that was funny because there are a lot of people who tried to kill Sandor Clegane that he isn't holding grudges against. And it seems like, I mean, for example, Beric Dondarrion, who he's with. And and it made me think of the fact that he's, you know, likely to see Brienne and shows that I don't think he'll be holding any grudges against her or anything for for that. I agree. I think he'll just be like, Yep, you beat me. <laughs> you really have a fan in Torment Giants, man. Yeah, a good, nice observation from Joe Buckley here that John is with a lot of the last people to see Ned alive. You know, a lot of like Beric in particular is a good example, and even Sandor and Thoros and Jorah and Gendry were among the last. You know, like Jorah is a bit more distant, but that's kind of neat. <laughs> and of course, these have all they've all have major interactions with Ned, even if they haven't seen him in a while. So that's kind of neat little parallel there. Now, Lady Gwen, you had, uh, take us away on John Tormund. Uh, well, I thought it was interesting that they refer to Mance again. You know, he's been brought up, or at least referenced, or his words referenced repeatedly throughout this season. Uh, this might have been the culmination of that 
Tormund reminding John how uh, so how many people died for Mansa's pride? Uh, I think this were these words got to really stick with John, and they're gonna you know t- the final scenes are gonna tie back to this uh, some of the things that he hears in these little chats with these guys here. And it's neat that Tormund is the one that kind of brings us all up of all people. Him com- coming from him really means a lot because it shows that. Tormund had time to think <laughs> I about this. Point out, he was like, Barrett, not really. He was a different actor. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's Fair very point. <laughs> <laughs> so that means Sandor won't recognize his brother when he runs into him again. He's like, that's, that's my, my brother is a different actor. <laughs> <laughs> He's tall like my brother. <laughs> and he wasn't dead either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we move on to John and Jorah. Yeah, well, one more thing. Oh, I do think, obviously, I think it's I think it's pretty clear. But just in case anyone missed it, this man uh, Tormund saying what he said almost certainly had an impact on John when he's lying there in front of Danny and decides to bend the knee, which of course has huge impacts that we have yet to fully discuss. We've talked about it a bit, especially Sansa and Arya's reaction to it. But the full, you know, impact of John bending the knee, we have we'll, we'll get to that. So yeah, John and Jorah, uh, Lady Gwen, start us off on this one too. So last time we talked a lot about, you know, the the Longclaw issue, what was going to happen when Jorah recognized Longclaw. And as fate would have it, he didn't recognize Longclaw. John offered it to him. So yeah. it was, I I liked that scene. Um, you know, it mm-hmm. really kind of made me like Jorah a, a lot more. Although I have to say I don't have a lot against him, but um, <laughs> I did like it. I thought the reference to John's future children it was interesting, and and also his kind of very significant John's significant pensive look at that reference. Food for thought, <laughs> I think, especially again, just like the thing you know, Tormund's words tying forward to that scene with mm-hmm. Danny near the end. Yeah, I still wish that uh, you know John would have offered the sword to Lyanna Mormont. I mean, he said, <laughs> "I don't, you know, you deserve it," but Lyanna Mormont deserves that sword. She's really been an MVP for him and a. And a source of support and clearly a badass and it's not like it, let's say she didn't wield it it, it should be in the mormont family if you think that anyways uh I, I just was thinking about the idea of that scene or what she would say to him or she would refuse it because you know he's her king so maybe she would just refuse it out of respect i don't know i think also it was just a moment like him he he wanted jorah to have it for that battle you know and maybe if he expected liana to be in danger you know, I don't know, but I agree that is a little bit, a little bit awkward. Also, a little awkward that Jorah didn't mention Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a few missed opportunities, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that more later. Yeah. But uh, I just wanted, I also wanted to say in this conversation, and I, I know no one's gonna trust my opinion on this because I, I don't like Jorah, but it did, <laughs> it did bother me that how, just how easily John ignored the fact that Jorah was a slaver. Yeah. He went so far as to say that he was glad his father didn't catch him. Like, yeah. I know he's on this trek with you, but I don't know. I it's, I it's hard for me to have any, you know, sympathy or forgiveness for slaving. Jorah did me. admit he was wrong. He's like, Ned was right. I, w- yeah. I shouldn't have slaved. And yeah. John said, I, I'm glad he didn't catch you, which yeah. I, it's, I still think that's going against the, the laws of the land and all of that. So I don't know. I think it's, a, like you said earlier, that's another just another thing that shows how important the War for the Dawn is. That John's yeah. willing to set that aside. It may yeah. be that under other circumstances, he'd be like, no. 
no, get out of here, slaver. But here he's like, well, you're going to gather I also don't wall. expect him to be harsh with him. I just don't expect him to like be so overt about this. Okay, uh, yeah. But I also liked in the scene, um, Jorah's talking about how mutiny and betrayal is the worst way to go. And that's what happened to John. And John yeah. says, I hate that he died that way. Yeah, you hate that you died <laughs> that way. I hate that I died this yeah. way. <laughs> Although I came back, uh, yeah. So, Yoko, you had to take your... Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some crackpotting. Why not? <laughs> book crackpot. <laughs> okay, so in in the books, would would Jorah decline the sword so easily? Because for some fans, it, it solves a problem. Some fans believe that John will end up with Dawn, and that could be Lightbringer, because John has this vision of himself fighting with a flaming sword, and people think, hey, it could be Dawn. And the, the counter-argument was... Well, what about Longclaw? It's this, it's this great sword. So, you know, if he did give it give, give it over, that, that would uh, free it up for a kind of maybe upgrade for, for a, some kind of special sword. If Dawn is indeed a special sword. So a lot of ifs, but, you know, I like to crackpot sometimes. Yeah, I guess... Uh... I guess we'll have to see. That is kind of cool. I kind of like that idea. And I, I agree with you. That is a longstanding kind of quote unquote problem was how is John going to maybe get a different sword if he's supposed to have a different sword? One obviously possibility is that he's not meant to have a different sword, that Lightbringer is, you know, a metaphor or that it's just going to go some other way in general. But yeah, I, I do wonder about that too. But also, as you say, the idea of John and Jorah together in the books is no sure thing, especially not in those circumstances. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Okay, so how about Thoros and Jorah? This was an interesting one that has a little bit of yeah, yeah, history we, to yeah, it. Yeah, we got the siege of Pike history, which was something we hadn't really thought about much at all uh, <laughs> prior to this, I don't think. Yeah, it's really... I, I thought this was a great scene, a great moment, because it just it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of the stories we hear, there's a second, you know, there is another side to every story. And as Thoros's bravery was just drunkenness, that's just, that's very... I mean, that's something that I feel like they captured George R. R. Martin really well with that. You know, that that conversation, something that he would invert the hero trope just completely like that. And uh, so I, I thought that was really poignant. Did you guys have any takes on that or I just thought it was cool? <laughs> yeah, I more just thought it was a cool scene interaction. I didn't have a lot to take from it personally. Yeah. And uh, Jorah being an older guy, I guess he kind of maybe has fewer illusions about this. He probably wasn't as disappointing to him. He's like, yeah, well, I guess that's, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> you know, it's not like going to put him in a bad mood or make him sad. You know, he's like, oh, I see. <laughs> yes. Perhaps the most standout conversation of all in this batch of one-on-ones and semi-one-on-ones was Beric and John. And I know a lot of people caught the, you must take after your mother comment, which of course all book readers are like, oh, what? What's that? What's that? <laughs> Lady Gwen, what do you have to say about that? That's right. You know, in the books, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's a transitive thing. You get John and Arya are noted to look like Ned and Arya is noted to look like Lyanna. Therefore, we can assume that John looks like Lyanna. So he does indeed take after his mother. And I thought that was a sweet nod to book readers right there. Yeah, uh, um, what I was going to say has been spoiled by our co-patron, Mark Joseph. I was going to say that it's interesting the next episode is called The Wolf and the Dragon, ostensibly about Danny and John, but could it be about someone else? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yes, I really yes. hope so. Or or it could mean that you get your, your, your wish, ghost riding a dragon. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it the wolf on the dragon? Or did Ghost already ride a dragon? If that was if yeah, Ghost's was pelt was Danny's, you know, was wearing Danny was wearing Ghost's pelt, then you know. <laughs> John is never going to be interested in Ghost after seeing those dragons, is he? He's going to be like, what the hell? I thought this was a really good present all those years ago. No. (laughs) So the Beric and John conversation had a bit of a nod towards John's conversation with Maester Eamon back in the day about love being the death of duty. And Beric flat out says... You know, you're not going to get any joy out of this. But John doesn't seem to mind, you know, and John actually almost smiles and he hardly ever smiles. And one of the smiles he had was uh, with Gendry. Gendry saying you're short. <laughs> and that may have been the only time he smiled this whole, like this whole season. And that was kind of neat because what I what I got from that is John Barrett kind of spelling it out for him. He's like, look, this is our purpose. And I think John appreciated having that, uh, being able to distill it to that, to, you know, this is a complicated situation, but really John is like, this doesn't have to be complicated. We're, we're fighting for the living, you know, and we don't have to understand why we don't have to understand everything. So I felt like it renewed, it helped renew John's sense of purpose, which I mean, he didn't need it renewed, but it helped kind of set his morale, you know, to, in a place where it made sense. You know, it's like, this is our job. We don't have to understand it. Just do the job, have the duty. And John bringing up the night's watch vow was really poignant. So, yeah, a lot of cool stuff there. And Richard Dormer is just his voice. <laughs> He's just a great actor. I'm just really. So it's surprising that he lived, but I'm glad because of that. So we'll have more on that later. But He's on his last life now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, his priest is gone. That was a real video game comment there. It's like, careful, careful, Barrack, your priest is dead, you know. <laughs> that was really like a video game comment. Like, you're out of lives, your healer's gone. So. Melisandre's got to show up. Yeah, right? Yeah, Melisandre's got to lay, uh, got to figure some things out here. Yeah, so I had uh, some thoughts. We were talking about these missed opportunities for people to talk about things uh, when, when Aziz brought up Sam. And I was wondering, do you know, one, I started wondering about Beric and Thoros knowing about Arya being Arya Stark in the show. And yeah, they did know. And so I would have thought that they might have brought this up in passing to John. I can understand Sandor not bringing it up, given his personality. He knew as well, but, you know, it makes sense for him not to necessarily bring this up. But the more I thought about it, the more I was wondering why Gendry didn't bring it up. And I think that's a pretty egregious missed opportunity Mm. because they were even talking about family when they first met each other. And so this is this connection that they have that Gendry knows about. But it could still happen. I'm not super hopeful yeah. about it. But John and the Hound could still maybe. Happen. But yeah, I mean, Arya got some short shrift there by not getting anyone talking about her. She yeah, did... I, I agree with you that Gendry was the real missed opportunity. Because yeah. Gendry and Arya got along. They were, yeah. they were friendly. They were close. He has yeah. good things to say. The Brotherhood might be embarrassed about what well, they... losing her. and Not yeah. just losing her, but the fact that they were going to ransom her. Yeah, know? yeah. So they may not want to bring that up because it doesn't yes. exactly make them look good. So I kind of yeah. I can kind of forgive that. And Beric had one, more important things to talk about. Yes, Thoros could have brought it up, but Beric I think definitely had something else to chat. Beric is just focused on the goal here. He yeah. doesn't care about that stuff mm. at all. And his memory. If we if we go with his memories, or you know, he's losing his memories, then maybe he can yeah. talk it up to that. But that doesn't apply to Thoros. But yeah. still, yeah. okay. So uh, Lady Gwen, what was your take here on on this convo? Yeah, I I agree. I think it was a I think it was a bit of an oversight, especially the Gendry. You know. It's just a kind of missed opportunity. But Arya and Bran haven't mentioned Rickon 
like, hey, where's our brother? Where's <laughs> yeah. our other brother? So there's that. Who knows what they talk about off screen? It just leave that to our imagination. And like you said, it could still come up, um, but it comes back to where is Gendry anyway? And will we get to see Arya and Gendry this season? Hmm. That would. Yeah, I, I haven't hope lost so. hope totally. I haven't yeah. lost hope either. I'm starting to. <laughs> <laughs> so no. a comment from more chance. <laughs> Adam Llewellyn, who had a super chat earlier. He says, it would have been cool to hear Tormund or Sandor talk about having ridden a dragon. Yeah, that would have been cool. So I would have been like, like, holy crap. I would that like was to something. see Sandor like, ah, uh, I don't know if I want to get on. <laughs> I'm a, little, a little nervous. <laughs> something that actually, it might be something that actually impresses Sandor. You know, he might yeah. actually be like, actually, yeah, that was cool. That was amazing. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. Something that. <laughs> and then he, then he brings up, you had Jorah mentioning Sam to John, which you brought up earlier, which I wish he had. Uh, he certainly knows they were at the Night's Watch at the same time because they both knew Gior Mormon. Both mentioned Gior, uh, yeah. So yeah. he has that connection, but. Uh, uh, I had a question about about all this. Uh, speaking of them riding the dragon, how many people can ride a dragon? I I, <laughs> I, I know I, I was already pretty down on Daenerys riding the dragon without a saddle. So like I guess we're just ex- accepting that she can hold on and latch in, but they all can hold on and latch in. And uh, I mean, not quite Jorah. Yeah, Jorah did. Yeah, just like Dario <laughs> said, you know, he's, twenty years ago maybe you could have done it, and yeah, he, he barely did it. <laughs> almost, he almost lost. May, maybe yeah, there's. Maybe there's your three riders. They're all on one dragon. That was a twist. <laughs> three dragons. You, we got our own dead rider, too, because the yeah. leg was just, he, Sandor just impaled it on a spike. Yeah, yeah, we did get him <laughs> on, on a there. horn or whatever that's, he that's, that. Yeah, whatever he impaled it on. That's true. I would have actually liked it if, like, one of the people just died there. Falling <laughs> off the dragon. That <laughs> made it. LML says, oh, a dragon is not sure. a bus. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was just going to say, I was, that was my thought when I was watching it. Was a, a, It's the dragon bus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All aboard uh, the dragon bus. Yeah. Someone uh, should o- overdub some comedic children's music over that scene, shouldn't they? <laughs> Benny Hill music, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, they fell down. We do have uh, one example of, of two people riding a dragon together, which is Visenya Targaryen bringing the young, you know, Lord Aaron uh, aboard her dragon, aboard Vagar, but that's a tiny boy. So I I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a big problem with this because you know, as as people who know have pointed out, dragons shouldn't be able to fly anyway. So if they can't fly, I don't know, give them a little more weight. But I, I agree with I'm what you're saying because saying, how are they holding on? But yeah, like they've like, already they've if already. Dragon can this just direction. do this. Then just she should have just given some of them a ride up there in the first place. I don't know. <laughs> like it would have sped things up a lot. There's just I, when I start thinking about like maybe she didn't know she could do it. But if she didn't know she could do it, then why did she try? Yeah. I, I, anyways, I all around I'm not super happy with this. But but it's what they needed to do, I guess. Although I, I was starting to wonder, like, if, if someone could ride the other dragon, you know, and which would be harder because Daenerys isn't necessarily controlling it. Yeah. But it would make it easier for me if there weren't five people on a dragon. <laughs> yeah, it's like pushing. Like, they're already kind five of pushing this. Now they're pushing it five times more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> With heavy people, you know. Sandor and Tormund are, like, big Like the dudes. biggest men in Westeros. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the biggest. It's true. <laughs> So let's look at this really cool shot. Shea got this together for yeah. us ahead of time. Notice the mountain shaped like an arrowhead is not have we have seen it before. Yeah, it's from that Children of the Forest flashback from the door episode. Yeah, so that's really cool. So what we're probably seeing in the green version here is the other side of the mountain. Sandor is on the southern side of it. Yeah. The children are probably on the far side of it, which you know, it's a mountain, so it's still really far away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can see it's slightly different angle of it. They're not, they're clearly not where that, where Wood Tree was or anything like that. 
But the idea that it used to not be cold is really interesting, and it brings up a really cool question. Is the birthplace of the others a thing in the books, too? Is that like, is this location matter? Is it, the, is it part of the lands of always winter? And will we see it at all? Those are a lot of cool questions there. Do you guys have any takes on this? Do you think that it has applications to the books, or is it just, uh, you know, the show wanted to yeah. create a, a birthplace so that it would be a visual thing, you know? Don't they mention the heart of winter? They definitely do, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I would think that that is a thing and that it's likely that that's what that means. Heart of winter being their birthplace? Yeah, that seems like a good corollary, yeah. Um, (laughs) Do you have a take on this, Yoke Boy? Do you think this is a uh, just, um, or, yeah, do you have a take on this? (laughs) Well, you know, I didn't have a take, but then Lady Gwyn said that and I thought that makes sense. That's from Bran's dream when he's in a coma. Yeah, and he see he sees green green sea is impaled on ice spikes, and then at the end of the dream he sees the heart of winter. I'm going from memory now, but I have read it quite a few times. So I think that's a really good call that the heart of winter, you you know, is their birthplace, and and maybe it's kind of oppositional to Winterfell, which to me sounds like the place the long night ended, Winterfell. So maybe that that's the the two camps for the for the end game. Yeah, I think that's really cool, and this is a good this is a good you know thing to point out. Not I don't mean this this particular theory or this evidence, but it's the, it's to the point that I made at the beginning of this episode, which is even in episodes that have all sorts of questionable things, there's fun things to relate to this book sometimes, even when sometimes it's just a matter of looking, you know, <laughs> because they get these things from George a lot of times, and that's that's why I'm like adamant about looking for them uh, because. It might be something they directly got from George. It's entirely possible they made up on their own. But if they get it from George, we should always consider that it came from George, oh. and that makes it more fun. Great great uh, note from Brett Terrell. Eamon one I had Alice Rivers on Vagar when he met Prince Damon and Harrenhal, oh, the Prince yeah. of the Queen. So that's one other with more than a small boy, a woman on, and they're both Vagar. Yeah, and Vagar <laughs> is huge. Yeah, so, so there is that, but that is interesting. Although Vagar was Brent less Tash. huge in, you know, Visenya's time. Considerably less huge. I'm just saying, Vega was like 50 back then and 180 when he carried uh, <laughs> Alice and uh, Prince Aemon One Eye. Another conversation that uh, was, you know, had some different, uh, maybe was probably the least meaningful in terms of book stuff, but was still a fun conversation is the Sandor yeah. Tormund show. It had meaning for what was going to happen later with, with yes. was, uh, Sandor yes. and Tormund interacting a little more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Gwen, you noticed something here? <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I liked this interaction, um, and well, actually, it was a, one of our patrons commented. Uh, uh, Marie French commented about Sandor saying that he hated gingers, which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. And I guess it, you know it was just kind of meant to be comic relief, but in light of you know San San, you know, <laughs> maybe he can make an exception saying, for her. <laughs> I, I hate gingers. I just thought, oh, do you hate? Do you really hate all? <laughs> Lady Gwen and Ash, did you take it's this personally I... when Sandra said he hated gingers? Did you guys both like? Definitely not. I'm no ginger. Yeah. <laughs> You're only uh, playing the role of one. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just play one on TV. <laughs> yeah, I did really like that uh, kiss by fire line, which, uh, you know, obviously because of Sandor being kissed by fire, but uh, as well. But I also like Tormund saying that Sandor had sad eyes. Because he does. He really does yeah. have sad eyes, I think. That's a good observation. Like, yeah. they're, like, they're like hound dog eyes, get it? 
they are. No, yeah. wait, I don't. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'll, of course we can't not mention all this talk of Brienne, uh, which was really funny. But I learned uh, after that because people were posting about it that Jamie is actually an inch taller than Torment, so Torment shouldn't <laughs> lean too much on the big monster baby angle. He needs to find another <laughs> angle here. And overall, a lot of the Torment scenes to me, especially with the Brienne talk, can be a little fan servicey. Sometimes it seems like they're just making him this mouthpiece to be really funny and more than he necessarily is. Um, naturally but uh i don't care <laughs> i like it i like torment i like brienne i i i like jamie and brienne but i really do like the torment just genuinely just likes brienne for who she is and how she is and doesn't want to change her and just wants to celebrate her whereas like i don't know jamie has some negative feelings wrapped up in everything about her yeah. So I, I, I like Jamie and Brienne a lot, and I'm excited for them to see each other, and I want Jamie to be a better person, but I think Tormund's a better fit for her if she actually cared about him, which I don't think she does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think she cares about, really, romance at all, to be clear. Yeah, she <laughs> has a weird relationship with being people being attracted to her, because the first time yeah. people were attracted to her, it turned out to be a big trick, a big joke. So mm. that's some, like, relationship PTSD, to mm. you know, to, to kind of yeah. overuse a term, PTSD, but still, it's, it's something. So, yeah, but really, maybe part of the thing that made up for Tormund being a little fan service, like you say, and uh, is that this legit moment of fear we all had for him, which it really seemed like he was done for there. And it was a great visceral moment because, it, you know, it happened so fast that it's hard to, like, process and be like, oh, they're not going to kill Tormund. Because mm-hmm. it really looked like they were doing it. And, and in the behind the scenes... I forget which of them it was, but one of the showrunners said that D. he, D, yeah, uh, <laughs> D, one of the D's, right, said that he, when he watched that scene, he thought Tormund was going to die, even though he wrote the scene. He was like, wow. So he was kind of patting himself on the back for making it so realistic. But he's right. It was. It really did. It was yeah. a, like, legitimately gripping moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the only moment of the episode with action that was actually really engaging to me, and it was really engaging. It was worried, and it was it was scary. But that said, I'm I'm no action fan in general. But for me, the other major battle scenes that we've had over the years all had something that I particularly liked. You know, we had the Battle of the Bastards with that really, really visceral directing. We had Watchers on the Wall episode with that awesome tracking shot. Hard Home, as I mentioned, had this great character development for Carsey. And this one really didn't for me. And it had some things I actively disliked. You know, difficulty seeing what was happening in the fight, chaos, and red shirts just dying and not knowing who was who, and and not really feeling the stakes. But for this Tormund moment, I did feel the stakes, and I was really worried about him. So so there's that. And obviously Viserion and I was broken up about. So there were things, but just compared to some of the other battle scenes they've had, it felt lacking to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a note here from our co-writer, Joe Buckley, who says this was a bit of a nod to dead things in the water, which is cool, whether it was intentional or not. It's that's absolutely true. And that's one of the creepiest lines in the books, at least until we learn more about it. It may remain one of the creepiest lines in the books when it's all said and done. But that line from Cotter Pike in, in his message is really creepy and really just sets the tone for what we, our expectations for the Winds of Winter and what we might see beyond the wall. Um, I think it'll be dramatically different from what we've saw on this show, but I do think that that's a very apt comparison. So let's talk about the bear. Yeah, after Tormund mentions making do with what you've got, they see a bear. <laughs> <laughs> that was well-timed. Yes. Bef- I know, Yoke Boy, you have a take here, but I want to throw something out really funny, is that also from behind the scenes... David and Dan have wanted this scene 
for four seasons in a row, they have been like, we want an undead bear. And they're like, no. They're like other people, the people who run the budgets and everything are like, no, you can't have it. It's too expensive. So they finally got their wish. The budget's gone up. Um, I, I liked, I thought this, mo this scene, other than the Tormund moment of fear, I thought this bear scene had a lot more tension to it than the, the full battle because they're in the snow and they can't see and this bear could be anywhere. So I thought that was a, a pretty tense moment. Um, but they're a thing in the books too, right? We, we get, we hear this mentioned, don't we, Yuck Boy? Yes, they're called snow bears. They are a thing in the books. If you haven't read the books or if you're a bit, um, it's been a long time. You can't really tell if they're polar bears or a kind of white grizzly bear. I'm a bit unsure. You don't, you know, they're not described so well that you can tell. But yeah, they're snow bears. Varamir, uh, six skins, the skin changer. He has a thrall of several animals, but he rides the snow bear and it can stand at 13 feet tall. So it's real fantasy, larger than life stuff. Uh, Moore's Umber wears a, a snow bear pelt. Which must look pretty cool. It's a shame he's not on the on the show because he, you know, I'd like mm -hmm. to see what it looks like because the bear's head comes over like a hood, the way it's described. That's yeah, pretty yeah. cool. And I, I think seeing a whited snow bear in the books is a, a distinct possibility. With you, you know the the others coming from the north and snow bears seem exclusively beyond the wall. So I'd say you you know it's probably I'd say it might even be probable that we'll see a whited snow bear. I would agree. <laughs> well, we have seen a bear. It wasn't a snow bear necessarily. The grizzly at the fist. There was a, there was a bear at the fist, an undead bear at the fist. I just don't know what kind of bear it was. That was I. I can't. I didn't remember that. It might, I might have slipped there. That's who killed. Uh, that's how um, one of the first rangers died uh, at Castle Black when the two whites were sent. They brought the two whites in, and, and the one that was going for Mormont was stopped. But the other white killed the first ranger. And the new first ranger, I forget his name. It might have been Jarman Buckwell. I forget. But the new first ranger was killed. And what, But I do think it's a precursor to other, you know, undead animals. Maybe. Yeah, I think them. there'll be all kinds of creatures when they finally attack. I think it'll be, a, a, you know, hodgepodge army of all sorts. Spiders. Right <laughs> so Lady Gwen, you had a, a take here as well. Yes, I really liked that they showed the conflict once the bear was burning and you have this burning undead snow bear. Um, Sandor was terrified. He's literally paralyzed by the fire. And of course, you know, that is his great fear. We've seen it numerous times um, all the way back. Battle on the Blackwater. Um, here's a quote from the books where he it just shows his terror right before he kind of breaks and deserts. The blood on Clegane's face glistened red, but his eyes showed white. He drew his longsword. He's afraid, Tyrion realized, shocked. The hound is frightened. So it's, you know, he's terrified of fire. And in this scene, he just freezes. He really can't do anything. Um, freezes, ha ha ha. Yes, ha ha. <laughs> Um, but then I think going forward to the thing we talked about with him and Tormund, it, that was kind of him saving Tormund was really a moment of redemption, looking back at the scene where he really failed. 
to do anything yeah. to help his brothers there, you know, with the snow bear. So, and mm-hmm. it yeah, was... I, I'll be disappointed if we don't see some fallout from that. For I, I expect to see Sandor being, you know, feeling guilty over this over Thoros because he was mm-hmm. close with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think he might be. His story is so internal; it might be difficult for them to put it, show it on TV. But maybe they'll, they'll throw some comments out that that kind of indicate that his guilt. And of course, Jorah rushes up and is the one to finish the bear off. Which you know, given that he's a Mormon, is that's kind of fitting. Jorah knows what to do. He knows how to deal with bears. And this is also the first moment in the episode where we really realize how powerful Dragonglass is. That it can break the animation spell. Which is interesting because it's not established in the show. It's, I mean, in the books, it's kind of an open question. It's something that even our characters ponder in the books. They haven't figured this out yet. They haven't gotten this far along. They haven't had Sam at the Citadel reading about these things. Well, Sam is at the Citadel, but he hasn't read about these things yet, or if he's going to. Patron Demetrios, the besieger, wants to know, can you explain the differences between show whites, others, and what, the, and what we know from book canon? Well, we're going to partly do that. What it seems to be here in the show is it seems to be the Night King was created by the others, and then he either made more like himself or the children made more like him and then that they in turn raise the dead and that you know if they are killed then the dead that they've raised go down with them it's also possible that the night king being killed will just shut down everything you know if you kill him maybe all the white walkers die and then barrack's comments sort of hint at that but it's certainly no sure thing but we're talking about how this relates to the books so yoke boy you got this quote here that gets us started really well with this all this dragon glass, how does it work sort of thing discussion that we're about to have. Yeah, okay, I'll read this quote. I found mention of dragon glass. The children of the forest used to give the Night's Watch a hundred obsidian daggers every year during the Age of Heroes. The others come when it is cold. Most of the tales agree, or else it gets cold when they come. Sometimes they appear during snowstorms and melt away when the skies clear. They hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night, or else night falls when they emerge. Some stories speak to them riding the corpses of dead animals, bears, direwolves, mammoths, horses. It makes no matter so long as the beast is dead. The one that killed Smallpaw was riding a dead horse, so that part's plainly true. Some accounts speak of giant ice spiders too. I don't know what those are. Men who fall in battle against the others must be burned, or else the dead will rise again as their thralls. And this is from the infamous double chapter, the one that happens from two angles, Sam 1 in Feast and John 2 in Dance. Yeah, and that is a great way to kick things off here because there's a lot that the, sh- the book characters still don't understand about Dragonglass. What it, it seems to be that show Dragonglass is less brittle than the books, but we don't really know that for sure. We do see weapons of Dragonglass in the books that you would think would shatter if it's as brittle as we've been given led to believe. So maybe it's not quite as brittle as we think. Maybe it's just... The fact is we saw Sam try to stab Small Paul and he hit his armor. So it's, you know, we have yet to see a dragonglass weapon strike the flesh of a white. We've seen a white walker, but we haven't seen a white. Now, we've seen it in the show a bunch of times now in this scene, particularly. Everyone was fighting with dragonglass weapons with the exception of uh, Jorah 
I mean, sorry, with the exception of John, who's fighting with Longclaw, and the two red priest guys who were fighting with flaming swords. But everyone else had dragon glass. Sandor was using the hammer for a little while, but as soon as he smashed the ground with it, he switched to dragon glass weapons. So what was happening is they're stabbing the whites, and the dragon glass breaks the spell. This was set up by the Benjen stuff earlier. Benjen saying that he didn't rise as a thrall because the children you know, stuck him with dragon glass and then did some other magic, apparently. And what's funny is you brought up Moore's Umber before, and uh, Moore's Umber's nickname is Crow Food, and Moore's Umber has a dragon glass eye. <laughs> so it would be funny to think that if he dies in the book and doesn't rise like the rest of the, the dead because he's got a dragon glass eye. <laughs> maybe not him, maybe somebody else. Maybe that comes up elsewhere, but that would be pretty funny if he doesn't rise because of the dragon glass that's already in him. <laughs> so we have another quote here. Who cares? Grand's accent, wood chips flying. They come together, that's what matters. Hey, now that we know that dragon glass kills them, maybe they won't come as all at all. Maybe they're frightened of us now. <laughs> Very optimistic. Pretty optimistic there, Gren. <laughs> Sam's not so sure. He says, Sam wished he could believe that, but it seemed to him that when you were dead, fear had no more meaning than pain or love or duty. He wrapped his hands around his legs, sweating under his layers of wool and leather and fur. The dragonglass dagger had melted the pale thing in the woods, true, but Gren was talking like it would do the same to whites. We don't know that, he thought. We don't know anything, really. And that's Sam to a, uh, a storm of sorts. Such a scientist. That's... Yeah, Sam is, it's the wheels are turning. This is the earlier point. This is before he goes to the Citadel and all that. And, you know, I guess he might get to that same point at the Citadel that he got to here in the show that in the, that he get, will hopefully get to in the books where he's reading about more things about Dragonglass and about what's coming. Whenever Sam thought of the cash John had found buried beneath the fist, it made him want to cry. There'd been dagger blades and spearheads and two or three hundred arrowheads at least. John had made daggers for himself, Sam, and Lord Commander Mormont, and he'd given Sam a spearhead, an old broken horn, and some arrowheads. Gren had taken a handful of arrowheads as well, but that was all. So now all they had was Mormont's dagger and the one Sam had given Gren, plus nineteen arrows and a tall, hardwood spear with a black dragonglass head. The sentries passed the spear along from watch to watch, while Mormont had divided the arrows among his best bowmen. Also, Sam... A, so a Storm of Swords 2. Right. Uh, or Sam 2, A Storm of Swords. <laughs> Second A Storm of Swords, yes. And uh, so, continuing on this line of thought from a book perspective, Stannis says that he's mined a lot of Dragonglass, or ordered his Castellan to do that. We don't have any confirmation that any of that Dragonglass has actually reached the wall. And we don't know whether it will because, you know, the Tyrells come and, and presumably take Dragonstone. We don't know if any of the shipments got, got off, you know, got sent north. So we'll have to see. By the way, I want to point out, I want to make fun of myself. My friend Rudy pointed out that on Monday I said, real world Dragonglass, I used the term. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just like saying obsidian or something. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I'm just too deep in it. I'm too deep in the material. It's all this. The real world is Westeros, and the fake world is elsewhere. Whoa, we had some we had some cat thunder. I'm gonna say that fell. again. The real world is Westeros, <laughs> and the fake world is the real world. There's also a quote here from uh, Melisandre, which 
I don't know that she knows what she's talking about, but she says, Necromancy animates these whites, yet they're only dead flesh. Steel and fire will serve for them. The ones you call the others are something more. So she sort of throws shade on the idea that Dragonglass will take out whites, but I think they probably will. I think it will probably break the spell. We've seen enough to hint at that. It's not a sure thing, but that's kind of kind of how it's looking at this point. Do you guys have a different take on that, or do you feel like that's probably what, what the deal is? Yeah, it could be. Uh, Mel isn't the the number one advisor that I, I would yeah. choose. But, <laughs> I guess. How many whites has she actually encountered in her life? I'm guessing uh, not so many. <laughs> Maybe she sees fire whites. Yeah, yeah, right? There's yeah. those. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> okay, so... This next little bit is called Run, Gendry, Run. <laughs> so, Lady Gwen, take us away. Uh, I'm going to do a little history nerding at the moment because I was palpably reminded at the end of the race, um, and this was kind of, um, this was emphasized by all the people making marathon jokes, by the way, on Twitter after the episode, or all over the place, not just Twitter, um, of the origins of the marathon, which is the legend of a Greek, the Greek soldier Philippides running the distance from Marathon to Athens, which is 26 miles thereabouts, to announce a great victory over the Persians. And he fell down dead upon delivering his message. So when Gendry ran all the way back to the wall and then fell down right at the end, I was... <laughs> Out of Philippides, of course, because <laughs> I'm a history nerd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. I like that. It's a good comment. That's a good catch. I didn't catch that. And I'm, as much as I am a fan of Greek history, I feel like I should have. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, another another little reference here that's kind of funny. Uh, on Frozen Pond is what we're calling the, uh, the overnight or maybe more than one night sitting around on the lake. And I, you caught a, a great, uh, you made a great reference to another famous fantasy uh, story here, Lady Gwyn, which I think yeah, is hilarious. Yeah, I, I wasn't alone. I mean, I noticed it when I watched it. And of course, other people have commented on it. I've seen some great memes. But Sander, fool of a Clegane. <laughs> re- <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Referencing Even uh, Pippin. Yep. Pippin took, uh, Peregrine took, throwing that rock down the well in the Mines of Moria and waking up the Balrog in Lord of the Rings. Um, so I thought that was a, it's, maybe it was meant to be a nod, maybe not. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, Beric lights up his weapon there. And I was I was wishing that Beric would tell John about the sword trick so we could see if it works for John. Yeah, light. Like, I want to know if it'll work. <laughs> but also, I was wondering, can't he just light some other weapons as well for them? Like, it seems like it yeah. was pretty useful. Like, he can use his blood, you know, to light it for some other people. Mm. Yeah, he could have lit Sandor's sword before he switched to the hammer yeah. and the dragon I don't know, glass. Yeah, it's just a thought I had. I, I, I it's not like they had time exactly for it, but Beric and John talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah, it seems weird. Also, you know, the, the weird thing about that was he was lighting a sword on his fire by dragging it along his hand. His yeah. gloved hand. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he could have a hole in the palm, which is fine, yeah, but still, okay. it's a little funny. Just convenient. Yeah, see yeah, that. Yeah, just a, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's there's evidence in the books that it's the blood that lights a glass candle. Did you? So, you know. Yeah, yeah the, the, uh, glass not, ca- the glass you know. candles, they're made of dragon glass. And the, they have to l- try and light one in a, in a black room, a dark room. But they've got razor sharp edges, 
So we thought, you know, is this what's happening? It's blood magic. And then, you know, magic comes back to the world as it is. And, and then the, it starts to work. It must be blood magic. Otherwise, what are the razor edges for? LML asks, why does Beric even have gloves? Well, we <laughs> probably because... I don't, I don't I wonder what he experiences. Is he, how much cold does he experience? Well, I think they just had to do the human perspective here because oh. they're literally filming these scenes in Iceland. Oh, yeah. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> have the real that. actor not wear gloves in Iceland? <laughs> was there anything about that, Lady Gwen? About, were you saying something about that? Um, um, I was asking about what he could feel, Beric. Oh, what he could feel. Mm-hmm. like. Yeah, um, I didn't know if that's what you were addressing. You were saying something. Yeah. I don't know what he could feel. Probably not yeah. very much, since he, yeah. he was repeatedly killed and and hanged. And... Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, part is that I was wondering: one, does Beric feel the cold right. really at all? Yeah. Two, does John feel the cold really at all? And because mm. if he does, I I think that it makes a lot of sense. I want him to not feel it very much because then it makes a lot more sense why he could survive falling into that water mm-hmm. and come out. Yep. Uh, so I, I choose to think that he, you know, is mm. is pretty. Immune to it. Perfect example of headcanon filling in the gaps to make more sense than what we've been presenting. With. <laughs> yeah. I agree that it it, it it fits better if you imagine John has some cold resistance, just like how Danny has some heat resistance. Well, Danny a has lot. a ton of heat yeah, resistance apparently. in the show. In the book, she has maybe mild heat resistance. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, she didn't burn in the show in the book either, but that's supposed to be a one-time thing. But anyway, of course, uh, Bernadette Burnt points out that you know he seemed like he had hypothermia. He seemed pretty messed up afterwards. He did, so, yeah. But he also had a long journey after that. So that's, I don't know. Yeah, that's why I'm saying it would some. still affect him. He'd have some resistance. Like normally, most people would just be dead right then. They were frozen to death instantly. They would never come back. But because yeah. John has some cold resistance, he can climb back out. But it still affects him because he's still somewhat human. <laughs> he's just. Not all the way there. I don't know. It's magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, alas, Thoros, our one real casualty, apart from Viserion and, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe some, you know, some red shirts uh, <laughs> and another white walker went down, too. But uh, the, I, I, Thoros is, you know, we, we predicted this because, you know, all these characters are going beyond the wall, and those are the ones we were worried about. We didn't really think about the possibility of Viserion going on the wall nearly as much, because, well, we didn't see him walk into the north at the end of last episode. So, of course, you consider the characters who were definitely in the north more than the the theories. So, uh, yeah, Yoke Boy, what did you think of uh, Alas Thoros? Uh, you know, I, I, I was glad that the, there was a cost. I'm always glad when on a mission like this, you know, you feel the kind of hurt. I think that's a, a good thing for the story, really. And I'm glad he died. He served the Lord of Light to the last minute so he could die pr- proud. You know, the drunken priest who's probably had a lot of regrets. At least he died, you know, kind of facing off. Well... <laughs> you know against the nice king it's it's just a shame that he was killed by the bear and you know it would have been better to be more involved with the whites i think and kind of make that scene more dangerous as as we discussed anyway yeah maybe if he had a uh, more rum he would have survived. oh yeah <laughs> maybe endless flask had been a little more endless so <laughs> I, I think he pulls rum on his sword that's what it is it's rum and then he lights it <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's like one of those rum Perfectly drinks. good rum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, on the other on the other hand, maybe Thoros wasn't so happy about freezing to death. I mean, he did the his wound played a part in why his you know immune system was weaker and why he was you know made more sense for him to freeze to death because he was taking bad wounds. But that is slightly awkward for a red priest to freeze to death. <laughs> um, so we come back to something that that we brought up earlier thanks to a super chat. So let's finish that. Round that out, Lady Gwen. More historical More. references here. Yes. We're not just pulling out the the book references today. We got the real world historical references that are coming up in a lot of places. So yeah, yeah. Turns out this was a, a good episode for history nerds. <laughs> um, as we talked about earlier, there's a very good possibility that this battle on the ice is it could be playing out in the Winds of Winter with Stannis and the Freys. If so, then that is inspired by a real-life 13th century battle in Novgorod, which is Russia, modern-day Russia, uh, or part of modern-day Russia. Uh, we both have episodes on this topic, I believe, both of which feature guests Brendan B. Fish. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, it's, yeah. It, it, I think we all agree that this seems like a very fair bet for the way the Stannis... Uh, Storyline. There's so many hints in in dance and and also the the preview, the Theon preview chapter, isn't there? There's there's just so so much kind of foreshadowing that this is going down. It's hard to ignore so it. It's Nevsky, isn't yeah. it? Alexander Nevsky. So you know what they they positioned themselves very similar, you know, on a on an island and um, lured their their enemy out onto this sort of booby-trapped ice and, you know, they fell through the water and then they were able to win in that way. So um, it's an idea taken from history, maybe from maybe from George himself in terms of the show runners, but I still think it's a, it's a cool thing. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, his, history provides so many amazing examples of fodder for yes. storytelling, <laughs> especially for battles. <laughs> history yeah. has a lot it's of battles. Endless tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some of the most recorded things that have ever happened. You know, of all, so much of history is lost, but battles are well recorded. You know, plenty of them at work, but you know, they're am among the most common things that get recorded and passed down. So you had a, a take on Beric's take as well, Lady Gwyn, about his his uh, pointing out the Night King and saying, yeah, let's just he's, get him. You know, he comes up, I, I think, you know, he's, he suggests this suicide mission, you know, kill the Night's King. So I, I think that Beric's death more than once through his conversations with Jon is pretty strongly telegraphed. And especially now that Thoros is dead, and if we look at it logically, uh, Thoros especially given all the telegraphing that Beric is going to do something crazy, uh, sacrifice himself. Uh, Thoros really had to die so that Beric can. So, you know, that whole thing, like you said, is this, his priest is dead now, so <laughs> just clears the way for Beric to sacrifice himself. Yeah, that's a good point. It's uh, interesting. You know, and that's something that this episode... A good critique of this episode that I saw was that they're they're putting the story in cool places, but they're not making much sense in how they get there. You know, like as much as I had complaints about this episode, I like where it leaves things. I like where it puts us 
in a lot of places, you know, because like having an ice dragon or an under dragon, that's really cool. I'm really curious what they're going to do with that. How they got to the point of having an ice dragon. Well, that questionable, <laughs> but given where we're at now, like I like that. So, you know, so it's like they took weird routes to get to cool places or nonsensical routes to get to cool places. So that's at least one positive thing we can say. Yeah, Lady Gwen. I guess we should talk about the actual yeah. dead dragon. We should get into uh, the battle, some of the other big parts. Of course, Thoros' loss has felt pretty hard, but yeah. Viserion's death. Big deal. Big deal huh? I mean, I had to think about it. I've, I've watched it a couple times. I I actually, on um, one of my rewatches, I had to stop it because I think um Viserion's death is one of the saddest things I've seen on Game of Thrones in a real long time and is as problematic as this episode was on a number of levels that scene really really got me um you know I I found it kind of weird that I was so upset about a CGI beast falling out of the sky but I think it was the most upset I've been during a Game of Thrones episode since probably the Red Wedding. And I really did think back on it pretty mm. hard to see if there had been anything since then that affected me so deeply. And I, I don't think there has been. So, Yeah, it was pretty emotional for me too, especially with the, you know, mm-hmm. screeching of the other two dragons and the thought of them missing their siblings just broke my heart in particular. But I did laugh out loud in the moment because of how ridiculous the Night King's yeah. throwing skills were to me. <laughs> like, Aziz can vouch. I just like, Are went, you kidding? Ah! <laughs> in that moment. I really did. I felt so bad afterwards because it was sad with just the idea that he could be this strong and not just utterly destroy someone in single combat was just amusing to me. And I was like, it made me start wondering if the other White Walkers are able to do this. Like, can, do they have the ability to throw these crazy spears. Well, I think what yeah. it might mean is that we won't see the Night King in single combat for a long time. He never yeah. has been in single combat. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, is if, if he fought someone that he just, just crushed. I don't know. Yeah, you'd think so. At least, maybe. But maybe that's maybe that is why you know Arya shooting him or someone sneaking up on him makes more sense because just like yeah. standing face to face with him just doesn't maybe. Doesn't yeah, make yeah, sense. it's true. It makes me less you know sure that I'm glad John didn't go after him there and go fight him because he couldn't have won. I don't think at all. So yeah, there is that. And if it's true that killing him just ends everything, that explains why he, even though he would be a great hand-to-hand fighter, why he would stand back. Because there's no reason for him to risk himself. You know, like like a lot of commanders, even if they're like even if they're the best fighter in the army, it still makes sense for them to stand in the back because if they're dead, then that's that. You know, that just ruins everything. St- Stannis, Stannis and Tywin both lead from the back in the books. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And a number of other commanders do as well. Um, it's, it's notable when they don't, almost. Uh, someone like Damon Blackfire leads from the front. That's uh, Or like Robert Baratheon. That's, uh, it really means a lot. And it, and it does a lot for morale, but it also makes the whole cause risky because it could just end at any moment. It's like if Robert dies, well, uh, well, <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> so, Yugba, what was your take on uh, Viserion's death? Yes, yeah, so, sorry about the tears about Viserion. I thought uh, I was kind of glad that there was, like I was saying about you know the needing to be a cost in the story. Uh, I was kind of glad of this monumental cost. I thought it just made everything so interesting, a lot more interesting than if they just you know succeeded, flew off, yeah, whatever. I, I was glad there was this you know huge moment. So um, George has likened the dragons to kind of nuclear arms, and 
I guess now we're seeing how such a monumental and dangerous advantage can be turned on its head. You know, when when this dangerous thing gets in the wrong hands, uh, like nuclear arms falling into you know the the arms of the wrong people, how how you know devastating that potentially could be in our world. You know, it's being played out in Game of Thrones now with this new dragon. Um, I think that you know it was great and especially for the kind of tension going forward into the end game that the, the bad guys uh, almost on an even keel now with, with, with a dragon. Yeah. And Danny is, you know, her, you know, her reaction was painful too, but she doesn't even know. None of them even know she's going to eventually be presented with seeing her undead child, you know, yeah. coming at her living children, I suppose, that's and people true. she cares about. And that's going to be, That'll be really hard. Remember how we talked about how painful it would be us to see like a Hodor white or a, now we can, you know, Thoros won't be a white. He was burned. But at some point we kind of expect to see a character as a white that we liked. Maybe, if, maybe if, even if it doesn't happen in the show, I think it'll happen in the books. And that's going to be painful. But now we've got Danny is going to have that pain. You know, mm-hmm. she's going to see undead Viserion and that'll that'll hurt. Mm-hmm. Before we move on too much from the this actual dragon part, uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up something you guys talked a little bit more about in the show-only episode, which was the idea that we talked about before in our episodes is that the Night King maybe had to be a green seer originally to become the Night King. Maybe there was some first men blood or we'd speculated on that sort of thing. And so following that, if the Night King was a green seer, you know, when he became the Night King, then yeah, maybe he still is one and maybe just like Bran has these visions Night King had a vision about what was going to happen here and that's why a lot of things that maybe didn't make sense to people actually do make sense that the White Walkers are have a very specific plan and are biding their time that's why they don't just you know shoot John they're they can see the future but they can't just see the future they obviously aren't seeing that John or Daenerys or whoever will be the one to destroy them because then they would do something to stop that I think they saw a, a a bit of a vision of the dragon and the fact that they could take down Viserion. Yeah, I agree. And uh, maybe not even Viserion, but a dragon, or this is how they're going to, this is their way around the wall, maybe. Because we still, right now, in show canon, have no idea how they're getting past the wall. Now they can, one of them can fly over, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the wall coming down and creating a way through. If the dragon can breathe fire, well, that's that. It can melt, the, melt a section of the wall and there's their way through. But if not, if it breathes ice... Then uh, I don't know. Is he going to craft a giant stairwell out of ice to, for everyone to climb over? You know, something crazy like that. Is he going to fly <laughs> over the I wall like, and just wonder, can the, break can the, the gates open? Just throw his javelin at the wall and just crack it <laughs> with his super strength. <laughs> I I still like the what the body ramp. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah the yeah, that's... ramp. Yeah, because then that's they can good. just fall off. They don't have to build yeah. a ramp the other ramp. side. They can just jump off like they did at Hard Home. They'll just plummet down into the snow <laughs> right. like like Super Theon and Sansa. <laughs> <laughs> jumping off a much taller wall <laughs> so yeah i do like that and it to me it wouldn't make sense for night king to not have been a former green seer like where does he get all these powers i mean it, it he has powers that feel like corrupted versions of what green seers do he can animate the dead instead of and control them instead of animals uh, so and there's so much prophecy and prediction in the Werewood net, you know, it's a big part of it. And if the children created them, then he should have the powers that they, you know, have because they made him. So that all fits. To me, it's the the- a longstanding theory that I really agree with is that they created the walkers 
Maybe in show canon, it's just the one who then made more of himself. But either way, they created it and it got out of hand. They did not intend for these, some of these abilities that the Night King or the Walkers have to, to be in play. They didn't, they didn't see this coming. They didn't know that it would make the Long Night. Or they didn't know that they'd raise the dead. They just thought they were making maybe some some unkillable warriors, you know, that, that the humans couldn't fight. So, I don't know. Uh, so, I definitely think this theory plays for headcanon, even if it's not what the showrunners had in mind. It also makes it a little easier to swallow the idea of them having chains, which I don't really have a problem with them having chains. They already have armor, like metal armor, and they've been around a long time. But it means that they were prepared. They knew this was going to happen, and they had the gear already. So... But, as much as I can make sense of that, I can't make a whole lot of sense of Benjen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you think, yeah. Lady Gwen? No. Duh, Deus Ex Benjen, once again. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, a lot of us, I was talking to some people after the episode, were hoping that maybe Rhaegal uh, would come yeah. back. Yeah. Um, and scoop John up and rush him off to safety or something. That would have been way know. better. This yeah. was completely... That would have been way cooler. It would have made some sense <laughs> or something. This was yeah. uh, pretty much just out of the blue. <laughs> and, you know, among the little things that I've not allowed myself to complain about a lot of little things, I don't... The fact that when he rescued Bran and he had scooped all Bran and Mira up <laughs> onto his horse and they all rode away together and now this time no 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 okay see, I, I, I'll I'm say, okay I, with this I think he's, he's trying to save the time it really wasn't very much time though like we saw he's him hypothermia. go down. yeah he's worried about hypothermia setting in so he, he needs John's horse to go as fast as possible yeah. Right. That's that was the only thing I could think of, but it's still. But Benji could have gotten on, ridden like a mile, then gotten off. Yeah. Like... <laughs> away from him. Yeah, he didn't have to be killed. Exactly. Like, get me out of harm's way, and then send him on quickly. But anyway. <laughs> as for Benjamin showing up in the first place with that timing, I was wondering if Bran was able to communicate with Benjamin, as after all the previous three-eyed Raven was able to, and so I was wondering if it was possible that you know he'll bring his guidance up but I'm pretty doubtful about that but it's possible that Bran sees John and brings up Benjamin and said yeah I sent him to come save you or something it's possible so I, absolutely I, it's, yeah it's possible but I, even if there isn't that I think it makes some sense for Benjamin to generally be keeping a radius around the army of the dead to be nearby yeah what else would he be but doing right? th- what else would he be doing but also even if Bran didn't tell him something here the three the previous three-eyed raven could have given him enough of a heads up to tell him mm. this is what you need to be doing. Watch out for this yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 So he, would... it's fine for him to show up, I guess. I, I'm still not crazy about it. Yeah. I and mean, once they're like surrounded on Ice Lake, what's he going to do? He's got to like, I can't save them in that position. But once an opportunity opens itself up, then he can rush in and do something. But still, yeah, that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it work. It just makes it yeah. a little less bad. <laughs> Some aspects make sense, but quite a few others don't. Yeah, and they're just unsatisfying, honestly. Whether they make sense or not, I just don't think they're good TV. Yeah, I don't either. What else is, another thing is Dan and Dave just keep calling him cold hands. Yeah, I in know. The, behind the episode, like... That's he's not cold hands in the books. No. George has never been more emphatic about and something. You, he's like, called Benjen in the show. Like right. John knows Uncle Benjen, so like that's what he's going by. <laughs> no one's calling him cold hands. Uncle Benjen just that makes me laugh because I think of Uncle Ben's rice. You know, I just think <laughs> of like 
It's just it's the wrong connotation. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, you, showing my that's, age. That's I guess. yeah, yeah, that's, that's that's a generational thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so more so than most episodes, there's a lot of aftermath to discuss here. A lot of setup. This is why I said it's. Well, we'll be doing a little bit more of talking about what's coming, just because of the nature of this episode. Normally, we wait that wait on that for Saturday, but we'll, we have enough fodder for that that we we'll do some of it now and a little more of it later. Let's start with the ice dragon, though. This is crazy. Like, there's a there's definitely context from the books. Like I said earlier, George may have. We'll have to verify that whether yeah. he said there's not going to be an ice dragon in the books, but that but an undead dragon isn't yeah. necessarily the same yeah. connotation. So. I, I've never heard that. I, I, I don't mean to contradict anyone, but I, I know what, like a lot of his interviews I've got, I've never heard him say that personally. Okay, well, we'll maybe need some clarification on that later. In the meantime, Shay's going to even do a little research right now while while live. In the meantime, this is the where the idea of the ice dragon comes from in the books. It's a constellation, and it's a very meaningful constellation based on these details. And here it is. When they lost their way, as happened once or twice, they need only wait for a clear cold night when the clouds did not intrude and look up in the sky for the ice dragon. The blue star in the dragon's eye pointed the way north, as Osha told him once. So it's kind of like the North Star. It pointed the way north, but it's blue. It's the blue star in the dragon's eye. Like, how can you not think of that if you're aware of it once you see this stunning blue eye of Viserion open? It's really hard to not, uh, yeah... And there's kind of a cool parallel with John touching Drogon, you know, even though he's afraid and touching Drogon and kind of maybe like, hey, what's going on here? Is this John, you know, is this foreshadowing for John riding his own dragon? And then Night King touches Viserion mm -hmm. and uh, it's kind of a neat little parallel. So Lady Gwen, you can start us off here. What did you think about this? Uh, well, I, you know, when I saw the, them dragging Viserion out of the water, um, I was struck by the line, a dragon is no slave. And in my excitement after the episode, I incorrectly remembered that as being Viserys, which was pretty silly. But I think the sentiment remains because that came to my head right away. A dragon is no slave. And it just, I thought, what a tragic ending for a magnificent beast who should not be made into an undead slave of the Night's King. But maybe there's a little hope in that line. So... Who knows? Yeah. yeah. And I want to back up a little something I said earlier, because we were asked, we had a super chat asking us about how this affects our theories about riders. Well, one of the, there's a huge piece of evidence that Tyrion will ride Viserion from uh, one of the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters. So I'm going to say what it is here. If you guys haven't read that Tyrion spoiler chapter from, from the Winds of Winter, you're going to want to, you know, la, 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 skip ahead 30 seconds or something. <laughs> but he's, he, there's Jorah kills the messenger that comes from the slavers to say, hey, you, second sons, you need to go here and do this. And Jorah kills that guy, which forces the issue. So basically like, yep, now we're back on Danny's team <laughs> because Jorah just stabbed this representative. from. The and when he stabs this guy, the guy falls on a Cybass table and Tyrion just idly picks up the white dragon piece that's covered in blood. I mean... Come on, that is some. If you're if you're thinking about foreshadowing, that is some heavy-handed foreshadowing. It's not heavy-handed. It's just very meaningful. Heavy-handed is like sounds like it's negative, but I mean it's very very straightforward foreshadowing. It doesn't necessarily mean Tyrion will ride it, but it does 
It's, I mean, a dragon piece with blood on it might be Viserion's going to die. That's another way to look at that, maybe. But the fact that Tyrion picked it up and the fact that Tyrion's arc revolves around dragons, that Makoro says, you're, you know, I see you surrounded by dragons, the dragons, the saddle thing, the all these references to Tyrion and dragons, set aside Tyrion Targaryen, right? Because that doesn't have to be a thing. It might be, but it does not have to be a thing. He's His arc is just fully dragony. You know, there's just so much dragon stuff around him, so... The idea that Viserion dies here is interesting because if Tyrion, because there's also so much foreshadowing for Tyrion writing Viserion, so I, I just don't, I don't know, I don't know how to rect- how to, to you know, connect those two dots and make it make it work. But it's cool. I, I'm not in a bad way. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, and maybe it'll take more thinking. Yeah. So people are wondering now if this white dragon will still breathe fire. You mentioned the possibility, as did our pa- patron, uh, Sophie. Wondering if the Night's King could kind of burn a hole in the wall, and you know that's certainly plausible, isn't it? But um, uh, we're leaning towards this this kind of ice dragon idea. And Lady Gwyn has maybe this is a spoiler for for people that haven't read the Ice Dragon book from George, but it's just a description of the Ice Dragon. I don't think there's any any plot to, uh, given away. Do you want to read the quote? Yeah, I don't think there's there's no plot here. And for those of you that don't know brought my prop the ice dragon that's this is the children's version but you can also find it as a short story in the dream songs collection to be clear this is a story set in a land that has a lot of elements that look like westeros but george is on record saying that it's not set in westeros so they're they're technically not connected but there's clearly some influences here and hey george wrote about an ice dragon and we have a lengthy description so why not read it to see what george might think an ice dragon um you know looks like so the ice dragon was a crystalline white, that shade of white that is so hard and cold that is almost blue. It was covered with hoarfrost, so when it moved, its skin broke and crackled as the crust of the snow crackles beneath a man's boots and the flakes of rime fell off. Its eyes were clear and deep and icy. Its wings were vast and bat-like, colored all a faint translucent blue. Its teeth were icicles, a triple row of them, jagged spears of unequal length, white against its deep blue maw. When the ice dragon beat its wings, it's the cold winds blew and the snow swirled and scurried and the world seemed to shrink and shiver. And when the ice dragon opened its great mouth and exhaled, it was not fire that came steaming out, the burning sulfurous stink of lesser dragons. The ice dragon breathed cold. Ice formed where it breathed. Warmth fled. Fires guttered and went out, shriven by the chill. Trees froze to their slow, secret souls, and their limbs turned brittle and cracked from their own weight. Animals turned blue and whimpered and died, their eyes bulging and their skin covered with frost. The ice dragon breathed death into the world, death and quiet and cold. Mm-hmm. Whoa, awesome. so it's, co- it's cold. It's not, it's not like Silver Surfer. Yeah. It just breathes cold and it makes ice. And you know what? I, I, I'll read a quote now from the World Book about the ice dragon. Of all the queer and fabulous denizens of the Shivering Sea, however, the greatest are the ice dragons. These colossal beasts, many times larger than dragons of Valyria, are said to be made of living ice, with eyes of pale blue crystal and vast translucent wings, through which the moon and stars can be glimpsed as they wheel across the sky. Whereas common dragons, if any dragon can truly be said to be common, breathe flame, ice dragons are supposedly breathe cold 
a chill so terrible that it can freeze a man solid in half a heartbeat. It's also pointed out that they melt when they die, so no one has bones or evidence of them. Yeah, and that's just really cool. And so you, as you as I said earlier, we had a lot of quotes pulled for this, and I think uh, hopefully this has enhanced your experience of the last episode. If you didn't like it a lot, maybe this helps. It certainly does for me. I love relating things to the books whenever we, whenever we can, and this definitely provided us with a lot of fodder to make these comparisons. We have a couple of super chats here mm-hmm. that uh, this first one is very much in line with what we're discussing. Yeah, from Slope. Why doesn't he, as he is a Night King, just fly over the wall, burn or freeze everyone at Eastwatch, hop off the dragon, and open the gate himself and let the whites through? Well, Why no, doesn't we don't, he? We don't that know if he be, can. That might be exactly what he does. We don't even know if that thing can still fly. I assume that it can because its its wings weren't damaged and maybe it could anyway, even if the wings were damaged. But... Uh, uh, that might be it. He might fly over the wall, and I mean, I wouldn't go might to Eastwatch if I were him. I would. Eastwatch. Yeah, go to one of the castles that's empty and just <laughs> go there instead. <laughs> the wall is a lot of abandoned space along it, yeah. so just he's just he could easily find a place to do that. That might be exactly what happens. I mean, I think that would be more sensible than having the dragon breathe fire and melting a section mm-hmm. of the wall. But uh, I like the idea of the Night King opening a door, period. Yeah, just breaking the yes. gate out. Yeah. Can they pass through the gate, even if it's broken? You know, like with the yeah, magic and everything. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, if he, so, could, if he was even able to just fly over or if he wouldn't be able to or what. So since this question was worded, what's stopping the Night King from doing that? That might be stopping him from doing that. That might be. The magic in the wall might be the thing that makes this impossible. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Uh, maybe we'll find out next episode. Maybe at the end of the finale, we'll see <laughs> Night King on his dragon and give us a cliffhanger for next season. We've got another question here from Elizabeth Chris. Was the dragon turned into a white or a white walker? If it's mm. white, will fire burn a dragon white? Oh, so that's funny, the idea of it being, of it being vulnerable to, to oh, that. Yeah. There's a lot of people debating that. Some people are saying yeah. that because or because uh, Viserion was dead, that it would be a white. But, well, there are a couple things. One, the Night King had to touch him, which is different, closer to what he did with Crasser's baby. Two, you could say that, you know, the dra- like it's magical dragon. Dragon, he could easily have different, you know, abilities in that respect. Yeah. But I think it's notable that he had to touch him. And I think part of it could just be that while he could raise normal whites just by raising his hands, he this was a really hard thing, so he had to touch him. But I think there's fodder mm. for him being a White Walker, but I, I don't get what the significance. Like, I don't get what that would do for, what that would change, really. Hmm. It, it, it makes more sense, like Lady Gwyn says, if the dragon's a slave, yeah. right? And then, and then you've got this kind of sympathy for this enslaved beast doing exactly what the Night's King wants. No autonomy or anything. From Greg, from Gregor the Toasty, <laughs> yeah. Lord of the Bread Fork, George R. R. Martin has said there will be a future Dance of the Dragons. Could a White Walker dragon be what he's, be what he's talking about? You know, I had never considered that until this last episode because I always thought it was just a metaphor for, uh, you know, young Griff. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a dragon, you know, quote unquote, or more dragon. than a metaphor, but that there were clearly there was set up for conflict potentially. Yeah, so that is the dance of the dragons, um, because the dance of the dragons is, you know, it is two Targaryen claimants fighting over the throne, and so the, of course the real dance of the dragons had real dragons in it, and so it's always possible that you know young Griff gets the dragon seems kind of unlikely, but I guess it's possible. Euron stealing a dragon is still possible, yeah. and that could be a Dance of the Dragons type situation. But yeah, this could be it. This is another possibility. Dance of like an undead dragon getting into the mix. And again, I said this earlier, but it's possible 
that we still have Danny's three dragons, that none of them die in the books, at least not early on, and the and the walkers create a dragon. You know, that ice dragon that's that we've quoted, these mm-hmm. legends of real ice dragons, it's not a creature that was risen from the dead. It, it's, it's, it's a creature of ice and snow that melts when it's killed, mm-hmm. which sounds like a white walker, because when they die, they melt, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, puddles. So... Puddles. To the, but to fully answer that question, yeah, we don't know. We don't know whether it's a white walker dragon or just a white. I agree that it makes more sense if it's a slave that's more thematically compelling. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, we'll see. We'll I, see. I'm I really, really like, see. I, can you guys tell me what what you think the significance would be of it being a white walker dragon? Because I can't see like what would what it would be more conscious. It would. I, I I'm not following exactly. Like I, I see why people are saying it, but I don't really see what the thematic relevance well you. it could raise the dead on its own okay. or it could oh, that's your hacking yeah list. i don't know yeah, anyways i guess that that's what's an answer though or maybe it's for instance if the whites weren't if they actually weren't uh weak to dragon glass maybe then it wouldn't be weak to that or maybe there's mm. other differences that is relevant in the show but that's a good point uh, i i wonder yeah i suppose they're just gonna have to show us what its capabilities are we just don't know yet these are good questions and they're good food for thought but obviously these answers are tough to come by at this point. <laughs> we have a question from Red Ramira Ravenhorn of Skegos. I saw some theories about Viserion, a.k.a. Viserion. Yes, that's my favorite name for him. <laughs> when the Great Other turns the dead into whites, he doesn't need to touch them. The example was given of Hardhome that he just had to raise his hands to raise the dead. When the Great Other turned Viserion into Viserion, he touched the dragon just like he does to Craster's son. So, But Craster's son was alive, and yeah. this is a dead dragon. So that I don't know that that really... I don't know that this helps us figure it out. Yeah, except know? again, it's dragon. You could you could say it's a dragon mm. doesn't just lose all of its life force. Like there's magic. There's all sorts of things yeah. you could say. That's another thing. You're right. It's a magical beast in the first place. So, so I don't know. Yeah. Whereas a baby isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially Craster's babies. Ew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, Ramir. Mm-hmm. I, I like I, I like Ash's idea that it's just simply harder to to raise such a beast. So it, yeah. you know he needed to. Concentrate yeah, you need to concentrate and touch it. I think it's totally in line with magic from most things we've all seen. That that, that is natural. So we had a we had a comment on Monday that said they didn't want they didn't want to go that route of him just raising because then it would be like Ice Yoda oh, raising yeah, yeah. the X Wing out of Dagobah. Uh, it would look just like that, and I'm like, yeah, maybe that's why. <laughs> I mean, to be honest though, like I I don't see I don't really see why Viserion had to fall into the water. Period. Like, if it added all this this stuff with them having chains, having to raise them out, all that, I don't really see why the, the dragon couldn't have just fallen onto land. Mm. Yeah. I, just, I, I don't know. I, it's just a thought, like, that, that that they chose to do that. I think they maybe did it to maybe, bear, to, I'm totally guessing, but maybe to, just, just for the effect, you know, it's yeah. going down into the water is kind of cool. It's like, oh, the but dra- also, fucking dragon. Because so people won't get the, it won't immediately implant the idea of them raising yeah. it. So, okay. like, for the casual viewer, won't yeah. get that idea but, right away. Okay. Uh, it's a fine, it's a fine answer. Okay, so let's move on. Wow, we are really this is time has really flown by I here. Yeah, so. we're at almost three hours. So let's not talk even about questions. Yeah, a lot of going. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get to all the questions today at this rate. Um, there's more, so much to talk about. That's just the yeah. way it is. So if you, if you, especially if you had questions about what's coming, give send us to those. Send us those again for Saturday, and we'll address a lot of those. We'll have time to think about them more in the meantime as well. So. You know, we talked about Beric staying at the at the wall, uh, but just the fact that he's alive is interesting too. 
And it makes me think of the book again, even though it's super hard to connect because you're like, wait, Aziz Barak has been dead in the book for a while. How could this possibly relate? Well, it relates to the concept of passing the life force on. Barak passes his life force to Stoneheart. So people are naturally going to ask, is Stoneheart going to pass her life force on to somebody else later? And a candidate for that, this is a bit crackpotty, not because it's a weird idea, but because there's not much really pointing to this. It's just an idea. Well, who's the first character in the show ever to have obsidian? That's the blackfish. The first mention of obsidian in the entire series is the blackfish's little blackfish pendant. And he dresses like a member of the Night's Watch. So I always felt like early on, I always like played with that idea. Like, is he going to go join the Night's Watch one day? Because he wears all black. And this obsidian thing didn't occur to me at the time because this is like my first read. But hey, maybe Stoneheart passes her life force on to blackfish. I mean, that seems kind of, kind of far-fetched, but eh, it's an idea. <laughs> So, uh, uh, yeah, you bring up an interesting question yeah. here. I brought it up earlier, but I wanted to go a little more in depth with it. The idea, did Gendry travel with John and company south? Uh, a couple of points in favor and against it. You know, Gendry seemed to swear himself to, to John Snow, and he's friends with Davos, so it seems like he would go with the people he knows and not just stay at the wall, especially because there wasn't time for them to maybe give him, you know, those instructions. But we haven't seen Davos either. So maybe they're both there. Maybe Davos is taking him to Winterfell to relay some messages, potentially. Especially because we have this idea that we mentioned earlier of Clovis going to work at the Winterfell Forges. So maybe that means something. Um, he isn't in the previews, but he would also be likely to stay clear of Cersei, you would imagine. Mm -hmm. So, like, even if he went south, he might stay on the ship or something. He could just show up and they never say who he is. But I agree, yeah, that's a yeah. thing, like, no it reason to conflict. antagonize Cersei so, anymore. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what I think. I I want him to go with John and with John and Davos south, because I think that makes the most sense, unless they're going to Winterfell. I really hope he's not just at Eastwatch, because then it makes me worry about him being doomed. What about yeah, you right? guys? I think he needs to make mm -hmm. a new hammer. His hammer's gone. He needs yeah. to forge a yeah. new hammer. <laughs> Damn that hammer. I yeah. Um, I, I want him to go to Winterfell, I think. And and it's I hadn't really thought about Davos. I think it'd be really cool if Gendry and Davos show up at Winterfell at a critical moment. You know, <laughs> kind of like, a, what the heck is going on here? Why are these sisters fighting? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what is Littlefinger doing? Or, yeah, whatever. They, they need a little Davos over there. Yeah. <laughs> We have well, a... you would, I will get to that in a second. Okay. What about you guys? Do you think he's? Where do you think he's going? Do you think he's east at Eastwatch, Winterfell, or headed south? I think he. Hmm. <laughs> I think he's heading south. I think he's going to stay with John. Although maybe okay. John doesn't doesn't. Yeah, I think okay. he's going to go south with John. He's go south. What about but you? I can guys easily, see, easily be wrong. I don't have a lot of confidence in that guess. Yeah. I, I think think he's sick of land faring and he's off in his boat again <laughs> for another few, <laughs> few episodes. <laughs> I like that call. Land faring? Yeah, land faring. <laughs> Seafaring, land faring. I nice like one. that. Yeah. Uh, so now we got the super chat from Elizabeth Chris again. Thank you. She said, So it couldn't be burned is why the dragon fell in the water. Oh, uh, that's a great call. I thought about that myself, and I, 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 when I thought about it, I was like, when would they have time to burn it? Oh, yeah, the dragon could try to burn it. Like, of course. Uh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You wonder if they even thought of it. Did it occur to this? John, yeah. like, on the ship waking up, like, Sad for Daenerys, and then he's like, wait, wait a minute. We didn't burn. The dragon. Uh-oh. Yeah, I really want, I, I feel like he should think about it. They, they burned Thoros, so I, yeah. I would like him to have that realization so that there maybe it isn't just out of the blue. Out of the blue. Yeah, out of the blue. Oh. I said it, and I was like, ah, that's such a pun. I won't point it out. Where he went. <laughs> 
So, of course, Sandor going south is another big thing here. Um, do we have Brienne and Tormund? Do we have... Yeah, yeah, we have, yeah, exactly. Tormund. I wanted to bring up Tormund while Jamie's around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is Sandor going to mention that? It'd be funny. Uh, get, get Jamie feeling jealous. <laughs> so, uh, Yoke Boy, you have some thoughts here on a very long-standing, exciting theory that has existed in the fandom for so long and we might finally be getting it and that is Clegane Bowl is it happening should we get hyped yeah. let us know it, it, <laughs> it's one of those that's been hyped so long like people are kind of tired yeah. of it now like two years ago everyone would have been going crazy <laughs> but people like now I haven't seen well maybe they are getting excited but I haven't seen much of it so I'll give a quick Quick rundown of Clegane Bowl and why people have always been interested in it. Um, I think the roots of Clegane Bowl are down to two things. Okay, number one, the feeling that Sandor has some kind of unfinished business with his brother regarding the the face burning backstory that was you know so horrifying, and number two, this vision of brands in a Game of Thrones. There were shadows all around them. One shadow was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armoured like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armour made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Okay, so, so people still argue about who this is, but I think the the, the simplest simplest idea is that it's Robert Strong looming over Sandor and Jamie. That's what I think. I think it kind of makes the most sense if you if if you don't kind of overthink it, let's say. Um so if we see Gregor kill Sandor, I think it, you know, it, it might be bad news for Jamie if that looming over is signifying a showdown, let's say, then you know, the, if we see Sandor go, woof, we, we might see Jamie too. Mm. That's one thought. Um, I thought, you know, I really hope Sandor doesn't, you know, die, but I, I find it very difficult to believe he could overcome Gregor. And I'm horrified by the idea that he burns him again or something horrendous. Maybe I'm just a scaremonger. <laughs> that is scary. <laughs> um, oh, wait, go back up to the quote. Uh yeah, it's the face of a hound. Anyways, I just someone I, I someone points out Misty three oh six that Sandor's dog helm was stolen in the books. It's just That's notably, true. which I, was, mm -hmm. I I still think it means more about uh him being the hound. It's a but yeah, right. It's the metaphorical representation. But uh, it's an interesting point I wanted to bring up. Yeah, because uh, Lem Lemon Cloak is going to die. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty weird, but it's you know. <laughs> I, th I think it's interesting if Clegane Ball happens because could we see Robert Strong like mm. kind of be unmasked, so to speak? You, you, we know we we know that this Gregor is undead, but you know in the fight could could everybody else? And John's here with this zombie that he's brought down, and there's a, there's a zombie, you know, like fighting with Sandor mm -hmm. could this be a reveal that kind of really really sets the the cat amongst the pigeons in the, in King's <laughs> I, Landing I will say uh, another good point someone points out I never really looked at that this part of the, this vision before I don't really care about the game ball but uh, someone points out that in the line <laughs> another was armored like the sun golden and beautiful 
that all sounds a lot like Martel, but like Oberyn Martel, in another sense, be the sun, sun and spear. Um, it's an interesting mm-hmm. thought as well, because it actually did happen. He did have the mountain looming over him. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like that call, but I, I definitely haven't done any research on this myself. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the, the golden armor being Jamie's golden armor. Is yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's just the Oberyn's it's, armor it's just the line yeah. saying like the sun. Right. Yeah. Uh, like the sun is very it, telling. It's notable. I, yeah, I, I, I wanted agree. to bring it up. Yeah, That's said a that. Valid interpretation. I, I want to say that um, if this does happen, because I like to give little reads of hope to people, Sandor <laughs> is the only person in the story so far who has defeated the mountain in single combat. So, mm. undead, Gregor or not, uh, there's definitely, it's not a given that. He- yeah, the idea of Cersei already having an undead, I, I, I don't think this is going to happen, but the idea is funny enough that I want to share it. And they'll be like, we show, we here it is, here's proof, the dead. And Cersei's like, oh yeah, I got one of these right here. Yeah. This isn't this isn't proof of anything. You can oh, just make these. You guys are you guys and <laughs> your little these. zombie who's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this is a this is all a trick. Cersei will see, this is all a trick. See, we can just make this. You know, they just made this and brought it and they're trying to lie to everybody. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh We've only got a couple of things left to go. We're definitely not going to get to all the questions we had, yeah. so apologize for that in yeah, advance. Already, we are this is yeah. already gonna be the longest stream of the year. <laughs> um, we're almost to the, we're almost there already, and we have enough to cover that it's clear we're going to have yeah. the longest stream of the year here. So John <laughs> Mark, and Mark quote, went through all that work getting questions, and we're not going to. Yeah, them. well, we'll still peruse them and see if any of them have uh, you know have well, we can bring them up again yeah. on Saturday. Yeah, uh, I'm sure some of them we've kind of answered incidentally as we've yeah. gone to. That always happens. Yeah, we've got this scene between John and Daenerys or Danny. Uh, yeah. John's really getting into nicknaming now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Danny. Yeah. yeah, you know he loves calling Egret. Iggy and all that. So, <laughs> Iggy. Iggy. I don't know. Uh, she just called her Red. Yeah, Red. Yeah, I just... like that. That's good. <laughs> hey, Red. But uh, Aziz had me grab these great shots of this parallel between Danny and Drogo and John and Danny. And John even has some chest wounds. Yeah. Someone in the chat earlier mentioned that that uh, my eyes are up here. Danny, you know, because his abs are showing and everything. And as we said, Danny was eventually going to see the wound over his heart and all that. So, well, this wasn't exactly the context we we predicted, but it's pretty darn similar. And yeah, that's a that's a pretty stirring image, isn't it? So I guess Danny's learned get your get yourself a man with with plot armor because these barbarian warlords don't have it. They don't have any armor. Look at that; he's shirtless. For <laughs> I, I hope Danny doesn't break his heart again. Yeah, oh. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so t- he's kind of now, another history reference, is uh, the new king who knelt, right? He knelt before the dragons. Instead of melt, instead of kneeling, melting, I said, instead of kneeling before the dragon because how intimidating they are, he knelt before them because she put them at risk to help the north. You know, that seems to be why John you know, took this step, partly because he's grateful, partly because he feels bad that she lost the dragon, but, but but mostly because she did the thing that he needed her to do, which was to come fight the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead. That's the thing that really sold it for him. It's like, she's doing the thing she needs to do. She's ruling like a leader should. She's doing what Stannis did. She's going to save the kingdom to earn the throne. But at the same time, it, it could easily cause a lot of problems for him politically. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I thought that his words were in the same way that we thought other scenes between them kind of were going to be almost uh, more of a connection. I felt like his words were just short of some kind of a proposal because, you know, my queen could have a double meaning, not, you know, my as in my consort queen. Um, so I think he said that and I was like, oh, did he just? But then he jokes jokes around about kneeling and you know maybe it's significant mm -hmm. that he hasn't exactly knelt yet because there's still kind of hope that they could kind of form a more equal union um so in which you know this whole scene i think was just refers back to that talk with barrick about you know man's never kneeling so uh, you know at the end yeah. of the day john's shown that he's ready to kneel whether something else will happen we'll have to see right Hmm. Sure that. Yeah. Uh, the scene was interesting to me. I Amelia Clark had a bit of a different vibe than she normally does. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, with reason. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about her acting here. I think I overall liked the choice for her to be. You know, she's real teary-eyed and upset, but she's smiling through the tears, I, uh, despite herself, I think, because she's just so relieved about John's survival and that she's sitting there with him. So yeah, I, I think him. it was good. Yeah, she likes him. <laughs> <laughs> she likes him more now that she saw him shirtless. <laughs> Heck, I liked him more when I saw I him. I think she likes him more now that she's like, I'm not as worried about you dying. <laughs> <laughs> you just seem, can't seem to be killed. Yeah, what am I worried about? Look at those yeah. chest wounds. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he keeps coming back, plus the plot armor. I mean, yeah, this guy, is, he's, he's pretty safe. <laughs> So, uh, Yoke Boy, what do you think this? How do you think this affects uh, the whole RLJ picture as well? This is yeah, RLJ looms over, doesn't it? Because it's it's not something that the show are kind of going to go w veer away from. George has said that it's the central central mystery, and you know we've talked about how the likelihood of you know find out more about Rhaegar and Lyanna, maybe even in the next episode. So it'll be interesting to see how RLJ is going to you know, affect this kind of pol political union that's growing between them and the dynamic between them and, you know, what what will change with, especially in, in with the knowledge now of, of the legitimacy. Right on. Yeah, it, it seems uh, like they keep dodging the, even the possibility of marriage. It's, I wonder why, like, no one's even floated the idea, which is a little odd, but I guess that's just, I mean, they want to hide that possibility yeah. from, from casual show owners, I guess. pretty strongly at it to me when she said, I can't have children. Yeah. You understand me. I think oh, she was yeah, telling him yeah. there, like, you, are you okay with this? Yeah I, yeah, I felt that was very significant as well. Yeah, Which goes back to the John and Jorah thing about him having children or yeah. Or whether he very would. true. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. true. Yeah. So do we do you guys have any worries of the week? I mean Yara. it's all Yara. It's, yeah, it's been Yara, Yara for me for weeks, I feel like. It's always mm -hmm. Yara. No, I, I'm also worried about whoever is up at Eastwatch. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know who is still there except for Tormund and Beric, but mm -hmm. I am worried about the Eastwatch crew. Mm -hmm. Well, we have someone in the chat just spoiling all kinds of things. First he said, spoiler alert, Winterfell is in the north. And then he said, spoiler alert, Dorne has sand. So Guys, watch out. Big spoilers are dropping. Spoilers in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's no point. I was gonna I was gonna pick up these the books that everyone's talking about. There's no point <laughs> now, is there? <laughs> Dorn has sand outrageous. Um, but yeah. so I guess Yoke Boy, you'd be a little worried about uh, Sandor, wouldn't you, based on your earlier comments? Yeah, I I I guess I guess I'd be worried about Sandor for sure, you know, in that proximity to not only Gregor, but monstrous undead Gregor. Yeah. Uh-oh. 
I've got yeah, my reads I... of hope. <laughs> Your reads usual. of hope? You, you think Mira's pretty safe still? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Lady Gwyn still has reads of hope for Ned Stark, so I wouldn't listen to her. <laughs> oh man. Rhaegar um, still alive too. Yeah. So there's one more like really old trailer shot from not even from this season. So this isn't a spoiler. It's not even a trailer shot. It was in a trailer shot, but it was also in uh, Danny's House of the Undying Vision, right? Or no, it was one of Bran's visions. Brand's or was it in both? Bran's vision. And that is that dragon shadow over King's Landing. Mm-hmm. All that time we were like, oh, it's a big. It might just be this. It might just be a dragon flying over King's Landing as part of this armistice, you know? <laughs> but it could be the White Walker dragon, which is like, whoa. So both we run the range there of the most ordinary mundane theory okay danny shows up for the armistice of course there's a dragon over king's landing and then here we go to this oh but it could also be the night king white riding an undead dragon which is the most like outrageous but not so outrageous now sounding idea so <laughs> really wide range of possibilities there and again like yoke boy said earlier danny's visions indicate king's landing is toast maybe not through fire maybe not through who knows but toast i mean that is that she sees in her vision a gigantic hole in the throne room, in the ceiling. It's, that's got to happen. That can't just be, you know, that doesn't seem metaphorical, you know? Does it, it might, it, and even if it is metaphorical, it's still got to happen in some form or fashion that the Iron Throne is not a thing anymore or King's Landing is, you know, blown up or frozen or something. Well, you know, it's interesting because just par- part of that vision was um, her, you know, after that she goes beyond the wall and that's where she sees her husband and son, which is presented in her oh. vision as Drogo and, um, sorry. Rago. Rago. Now we, now we could be getting metaphorical. So could we be right? getting metaphorical <laughs> in that she goes behind the wall and finds her husband. So. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. That's pretty cool. Okay. So do you guys have any other ideas on what Cersei might be planning here? This is uh, maybe maybe our last question of the day. My lips are sealed. <laughs> she has a summer. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, I'll take a stab in the dark. Just, you know, what the hell? What, what if, what if the, what if the uh, Euron's fleet are loaded up with wildfire and they, and they, and they, they attack kind of a flanking attack, mm. like I said, and the, the main players are distracted uh, something like that. You, you, I think you know what I'm getting at. Some kind of ambush like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely suspicious of your most suspicious of Euron's <laughs> ships. I'll say I, I know some of which. I'll, I'll say I know a lot of what she's doing, but I don't know everything because I try to skim it, and so I don't know what what they're doing there mm. exactly. I'm cool. suspicious. Yeah. Um, one uh, one point here I want to bring up from a, a patron that wondered why Tyrion didn't insist on a neutral location like uh, like Harrenhal or something. Well, partly because I, I think he would, Cersei might not agree to it if they do something like that. Also because it would it would ruin Cersei's continuity of having only been Harrenhal, one other place. Harrenhal would not be a good choice for that because of what happened at Harrenhal before. <laughs> it would definitely put anyone's hackles up in terms of dragons right. coming there. Right. But you know, the point remains it's just a funny idea. If it did happen at Harrenhal, people would be even more like, oh, vision of Tourney and Harrenhal's coming. Uh, yeah, that yeah. we could have the parallel location. Uh, that's funny. That would be very funny, yeah. uh, actually. But uh, alas, that does not seem to be the case. So anyway, folks, we had uh, I told a lot of people we'd be answering their questions today that we're not going to answer because we are really well over time here. It's yeah, really late over there in England already, for the yeah. boy. 
So it, it's late here. Uh, before we go, can I just could I just say that um, we've got a new episode of Radio Westeros. It's War of the Five Kings, and we've got like a week long patron privilege. You'll have to check it out because it is kind of staggered. But if you want to hear it before public release, then you know check out our patron. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you want to become a Radio Westeros patron, you get that episode now um, or uh, in a few days, depending on what level you choose. And if not, well, it'll come out the same day as uh, this next review next week. So there'll be a lot of great fun for y'all to dive into, book and show. So that should be a great. I'll certainly be listening to that episode really soon because it's War of Five Kings. It's particularly a topic I'm particularly excited about. You know, I love uh, it's. Uh, well, I just love all the topics you guys choose, but that one I'm particularly partial to because it's. Uh, it's it involves so many different characters and, and topics and things. It's a big topic. I love big topics. Big. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. How yeah. how long is this one? Okay, it, it, it's going to be three parts. We're, we're oh. looking at, like, the first one is two and a half hours, right? Yeah, yeah Lady two and Gwyn? a half. So, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, upwards of eight hours or so. And it, you Hell know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we started out doing this months and months ago, and we ended up doing our uh, episodes on Joffrey and Renly as kind of just to get move some of the information off oh, into yeah. character episodes, so... That's what happens. Ta- tackle a subject and it grows. It, it always does happens. That's, grow. that's the way these things work. If yeah. you count the Rob <laughs> episodes, this has been our entire year. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's so great. Okay, well, that is that takes care of our uh, thanks for Radio Westeros. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really appreciate you guys coming back again and sticking with us for so long. Three hours. Yoke boy, especially staying up so late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He was up early working on the document, too. That's right. Yeah, early slash late. It's all. It's like Iceland where the show is filmed. You can't tell what time it is. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're going to twig that I don't sleep. I'm like a, a kind of white. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Gwyn is my white walker. I'm just a white walker. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're the one from England, which is shaped like Westeros, or rather, rather Westeros is shaped like England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm going show perspective first. That's like my real world dragon glass comment. <laughs> England is just Westeros. It's just Westeros, um, a little bit smaller. So, yeah, a little bit, yeah. England, <laughs> size of South America. <laughs> so, thanks also to. Um, Michael Clarfeld for the video intro and for these awesome maps behind us. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our music. Thanks to Shea for doing production stuff while participating in the episode, wearing multiple hats as and none at the yeah, same time. Yeah, wearing headphones and dropping the keyboard and mouse. <laughs> yeah, I dropped be- both the keyboard and the mouse, but the mouse was far more, uh, you know, of a disaster because the mouse ball came out and the battery came out and I had to like, I tried to pick up the ball with my feet and it didn't work. Anyways, it was a catastrophe, but without cats. That same guy spoiling things just said, spoiler alert, this was a good show. Uh-huh. He's talking about this review, not uh, Sunday's episode. Oh, <laughs> Obviously, thank you. No. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or that's just my headcanon, yeah, yeah. you know, getting in the way again. <laughs> and people are asking where our cats are. I don't know. They were they were sleeping. fighting. Two of them were fighting during this episode. One sleeping in a, in a, Jake and a cat. We got him a big cat tower and he's sleeping on the, the top level apartment. So. <laughs> Thanks also to our many patrons, as well as Radio Westeros' patrons, who make this all very much possible. We would not be able to make nearly as many episodes or go three hours in streams or, you know, it's because of everything. So many of these things are possible because of Patreon, so we're very thankful 
First off, the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. Oh, and next up, Lord Michael Valerian, Knight of High Tide, Guardian of the DeLorean, Hand of the Queen. And Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance, Hand of Beard. I accidentally, I mistakenly said she was the manager of a band called Longclaw. Well, she does photography and some other managerial type duties for them. She's not the actual manager, I'll make my correction there, but still, awesome to be involved with the Game of Thrones named band. Thanks to Sir Valentin of House to Jen, creator of the Game of Predictions, which is a free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. Good times. Thanks to Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire and Warden of the West. I see he has a new episode of his podcast to wage war out, so check that out. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills of Crescent Springs and Warden of the South. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods is spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands, and Crownlands. Our roots run deep. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. Our small council consists of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, and Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws. And our Queen's High Council consists of Lady Jane of House Celtigoth, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe and Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles, and Mistress of Ships. Lady Mai of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers. Elia of Upstate, Master of Coin. Grand Maester Elizabeth, middle daughter of Leon of Mormont, first lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link, and Lady E.S., Master of Laws. Right on. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Council of the Beard is led by Grand Maester Clark, protector of wisdom and beards and beard wisdom. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the alpha patron to both our show and radio listeners. And LML's show, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, truly earning the name the alpha patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Demi Snuggle Bunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and Holder of the Morpal Snuggle Bunny. Lord Blandon... Blandon. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroot is Sworn Alesmith House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithamancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwarewood, motto, Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. Queen's Guard, the Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard is Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel. And the Queen's Guard is rounded out by Lady Nymeria of House Seapurtle, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune, I Must Not Fear, Fear is the Mind Killer, Jane Grey, Lady Esk of the Tattered Spire, First Sword of Albion, 
Brian, the pest of Hyrule, and Becca the Bard, songbird of the North. Also, in the Beard Guard, we we have led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakheart, the White Oak, and Lady Rita of the Copper Mane, the Unbound. Motto, dance the fervor. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Dance the Fever is really good. Perfect for Sean. It is perfect for Sean, although he, when he first saw it, he misread it and said, Dance the Fever, and I had to <laughs> correct him. And he's, oh, Dance the Fever. They're both good, though. Dance yeah. the Fever, Dance the Fever. Also, thanks to Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield. First Builder Patch Face of Motley Wisdom. First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. And a couple other shout outs to round things out. We have Sir Justin Silvershores, Knight of the Borders. Galby of Sirwin is the Pale Blade. Lady Andrea Blackstone of Relay is Mistress of Tides. Lincoln Naranja is the Hedge Knight from Sothorios, known as the Anaconda Knight. And he don't want none. Yeah, I was about to say that. That's so funny. <laughs> there it is. Rashilo Redblade, called Maiden Guard, is the one I was looking for. Longtime supporter there. I wanted to get that one in there. And along the lines of... The Relay shout-out that I just gave, we have Sir Matthew, the Black Pharaoh of House Relay. The Blackstone calls to us. Those are H.P. Lovecraft references, and I am wearing an H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu shirt today, a Game of Thrones H.P. Lovecraft it crossover says, shirt. It says Cthulhu is coming on his shirt, and then it has it crossed out. It says, it's here. Yes, like it's got the stark colors, of course. All right, so that does it for the shout-outs today. Thank you very much, everybody, for staying with us for this very long stream. There was a lot to say, as always. Thanks to everyone who sent a super chat. Thanks to everyone who hit like on the video. Thanks to everyone in general. We'll see you all next time for the finale. Until then, Valar re-read us, Valar re-watch us, and Valar no leak us.